There's something about being scared that brings us together. Sitting in a darkened room, sweat on our palms, heartbeat in our ears. The exhilarating, entertaining, and sometimes therapeutic experience that comes from being truly afraid. As a kid, the idea of Dracula floating around, it was not as scary because it's like, oh, there's one guy and he's probably in Europe. And I like had chronic nightmares, like every night I would have to like search the entire house from top to bottom. I made haunted houses. Haunted houses that you walk through? Yeah, you like in, them. in middle school, I'm like, put some haunted houses to shame. There are no vampires. There are no werewolves. There are no living dead. It's not true. I definitely believe in magic. Uh, I totally believe in sorcery and in, uh, and in magic. I think any type of loss of control definitely spurs a creative personality. Meanwhile, I'm at your barbecue going, who are these lizard people? Now, when I'm writing stuff, I try to get out of my comfort zone and just dive into the unknown. A lot of the movies were telling critical stories in a way that couldn't be told outside of the genre. It was like dealing with universal insecurities and fears in a cathartic and safe environment where the credits would roll and you could change the way someone saw the world by like that much. I'm Elijah Wood. And I'm Daniel Noah. And this is Visitations, a Shudder original podcast where we talk with some of our favorite creators. Taika Waititi. Mike Flanagan. Analilia Mirpur. Dan Harmon. Flying Lotus. And more. For intimate conversations about the things that scare us. And how we find light in the darkness. Season one of Shudder's original podcast, Visitations, is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Shudder curator Sam Zimmerman. This is the History of Horror Uncut, an essential audio companion to Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth's History of Horror is a seven-episode docuseries threading the evolution and immortality of the genre and all its terrors within. These are the full, candid interviews, most of which can only be found and heard right here in this podcast. You'll hear how the genre shaped these filmmakers, authors, makeup maestros. You'll hear the personal, unbridled appreciation that only comes from those who know how special horror can be. Welcome to a more intimate history of horror. The History of Horror Uncut is built with the full, raw interviews conducted in production for Eli Roth's History of Horror. In some cases, Eli beautifully leads the talk itself. In others, deeply knowledgeable producer Kurt Sienga stepped in. Today is an Eli talk, and it's a special one. A deep dive with two genre icons, Greg Nicotero and Rob Zombie. The co-founder of the award-winning K&B FX, Greg Nicotero is a tried-and-true monster kid. He grew up in Pittsburgh, inspired by the genre and the achievements of the master George A. Romero. Before long, Nicotero found himself working with the Night of the Living Dead creator visiting the set of Creepshow, and doing major, now legendary makeup work on Day of the Dead with Tom Savini. You know his work from Evil Dead 2, Tales from the Dark Side, Army of Darkness, and so much more, including zombie phenomenon The Walking Dead, where Nicotero now serves as executive producer, makeup lead, and frequently director. Rob Zombie first found success in the deeply horror-influenced and influential metal band White Zombie. After building a massive solo career in music, Zombie turned his eye to film where he's crafted intense, unflinching visions of the macabre. In House of a Thousand Corpses, its sequel The Devil's Rejects, Halloween, my personal favorite Lords of Salem, and the killer clown spectacle 31. Zombie's work is all his own. It's an irreverent individual voice inspired by classic outsider nightmares like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
So if you'll remember in the early and mid 2000s, Zombie and Eli Roth got pegged as part of this thing called the Splat Pack. Together with dudes like James Wan and Alex Aja, this was a time when Saw, Hostel, High Tension, The Devil's Rejects all came out and brought horror back to gory days, really. It's there when all these filmmakers first crossed paths with Nicotero, and he was by then established, he was already a legend, and had clearly influenced them in the way that Romero and the classic monster movies influenced him. Now they're all colleagues and peers, and you can listen to a fantastic interview that reflects that. They're covering a whole spectrum of horror. It's filled with heart, it's filled with friendship, it's filled with humor, it's filled with fandom. It's a talk between friends informed by common ground and personal, sometimes diverging sensibilities. Here now is Eli Roth, Greg Nicotero, and Rob Zombie. Listen up, ghouls. King Kong. King Kong was probably one of the first horror movies I saw because it was one of those films that aired on television before cable existed. Over, over and days. over again. Yep. Yeah. Like, and I remember going to the library and there was a book of movie monsters <coughs> and going through every frame and every picture of King Kong. Like, what are your, what are your, when did you guys first see it? I, listen, I remember seeing it, seeing it at the theater um, when I was a kid. You know, my parents were huge and still are huge movie buffs. So every Saturday afternoon matinee, we would go if it was Godzilla versus a smog monster and War of the Gargantuas. Yeah. So King Kong, I remember seeing, and I had this, the, the, there was a book called The Girl and the Hairy Paw. Oh, yeah. And it was all about, book. it was yeah. all about King Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I studied the, I studied the book over and over again. And, you know, of course, being a young kid, there's a scene where Kong is taking her clothes off. And I was like, how'd they do it? You use wires. And then, of course, the giant spider scene that was, that was famously high. cut out. Mm-hmm. And then they had the famous monsters also had a still of the giant spider in that chasm. I think that was one of the first times that I remember that there was something cut out of a movie that I felt like I needed to see. Yeah, like, yeah. why did they take yeah. it out? And it was, oh, it was so gruesome and the audiences couldn't handle it. And I was like, for King Kong, really? But... Do you remember seeing it as a kid? I remember it. I mean, well, it was like you said, it was always on TV. It was always like one half of Creature Double Feature or something. But I, I specifically remember when I was in kindergarten, I think, going to the local public library and they showed it like on, mm-hmm. on film in the basement. You know, it was like 10 kids watching it. But I knew I had seen it many times before that because I had the Aurora kits and had built the thing. And it was just always there. I think it may have been one of the first movie I ever saw, period. And before home video, do you remember they used to sell 16 millimeter? Castle eight, film. It castles oh, yeah, like yeah. 8 millimeter. I didn't have yeah. King Kong, but we had some. Yeah, they had like Dracula, <laughs> but even Alien. You could buy like before video home version yeah. was like a seven minute version of the movie mm-hmm. silent. Yeah, you could just watch the greatest scenes from King Kong. But like, as a kid, I remember there was King Kong and there was Mighty Joe Young and there was Godzilla vs. King Kong. And to me, they were all made by the same person. I didn't know that like, King Kong vs. Godzilla was a Japanese movie. I just knew that it took place in Japan. Like I didn't, <laughs> and that it was shot in the 60s. Or that you know, Mighty Joe Young, that was like King Kong's brother. Or the and then Son of Kong. Son of Kong. Like, yeah, I remember King Kong vs. Godzilla. I was like, what's wrong with this face? Yeah, it yeah didn't, they looked it different. Didn't, it You're didn't like, move. King Kong and they shot like, a close-up of it, and the close-up didn't look anything like the guy in the suit. So I, I, I remember always being confused. I never thought about that. I remember thinking Godzilla looked a little different in each movie, but I just yeah. assumed it was the same suit that they used for like 20 years. But, you know, the thing about King Kong that I, from my effects background was the fact that it was a stop-motion puppet, yeah. and then they had the full-size hands, and then they had the giant head. And there's that great photo of the native in the mouth. Like King Kong was yeah, picking yeah. people up, and there's a picture of a guy going, oh, and he's looking up at the head, and it was, again, in Famous Monsters. And from a technical standpoint, I just remember looking at that going, 
wow, they built something. And it was a bunch of guys like smoking cigarettes, like with, you know, <laughs> spray glue yeah. and just like rubber cement <laughs> and shoving hair onto this giant puppet. And I, you know, between that and, you know, I, I, was, I was thinking about like all of us, like if, if you can throw three words out or four words out to everybody that is involved in the horror industry, and they'll talk for hours about it. And stop motion in Ray Harryhausen yeah. and Willis O'Brien was one of the first things where your brain had to comprehend that the puppet was this big, and some guy had to move it. Well, yeah, one I remember thinking, I know it's not real, but I have no idea what's going on here. Yeah, because you're too <coughs> well, kids, it's, it's, you don't understand anything yet. And then you, you know, get famous monsters or something. You go, oh, okay, now I kind of get it. Right. I, I had the pleasure of meeting Harryhausen once, and he had the maquettes for Mighty Joe Young and, and King Kong. So I got to like actually hold like one of the Kong maquettes. And I asked him what he thought about sort of the new special effects and CG, and he said the whole point of fantasy was it was never supposed to be real. That when he did the Golden Voyage of Sinbad and all those incredible, you know, Clash of the Titans and mm -hmm. all those films he did, that it's not about looking real or fake. It's fantasy. It's just about getting into the story. So it's interesting how, like, you know, you look at Peter Jackson's King Kong, which at the time is those incredible state-of-the-art effects. Like, I'm still more emotionally attached to the stop-motion puppet. I have a theory on that. I think I really would feel bad as a kid. Like would what happened, King Kong at the end of the movie, because it, it he seemed real because he was real, because right. it actually existed in mm -hmm. three dimensional space. Whereas there's something about CG stuff, like your brain knows, well, it doesn't actually exist. Like that is something you can touch. And I remember Tim Burton once saying it was cool how the fur would move weird because you know yeah like, because hands the animator the was yeah you see the yeah articulating it. But I think your brain somehow knows it's there. It's there. Well, it doesn't go, oh, it doesn't look real, but, but it's it's but like it is it's real like in this actually happening. Yeah, well it's like in Star space. Wars with with puppets versus CG characters. Yeah. Like we the creature cantina is real because those were actual people there. And that, yeah, like if you watch Star Wars now, it's to me it's the only it's the best one, but it seems so primitive, but it seems I'll take a guy in a karate gi in the desert over <laughs> yeah. you know, fifty million stormtroopers <clears throat> that I know don't exist in real space, you know. Well the cool thing about King Kong was Willis O'Brien instilled personality. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that if you look at Ray Harryhausen's work later, you know, when Kong would stand up and he would scratch and he would, he would, he would move yeah. like an animal. Yeah. But then you would see him and he actually cared about Feyre and he protected her. And then a pterodactyl would attack and he'd hold his hand here and protect her and fight off the other creatures. And again, the best thing about... That particular. That's amazing. amazing. But it's a, great, it's a great creature features movie because it's not just King Kong. There's so many other cool moments. You know, these guys go to this island to basically rescue this woman and they go through this house of horrors of all the different dinosaurs mm -hmm. and then the snake and the pterodactyl and all the stuff. And then when Kong has to exhibit some fury to basically go back after the girl, um, he becomes a monster. But she never looked at him like a monster. And I think well, that was fascinating about King Kong yeah. overall. What's interesting is if you think, probably at that point in history, I mean, if horror movies are around for about 10 years, if it's starting in the 20s, think about Nosferatu, if you think about the Golem, if you think about Dr. Caligari, they're all monsters that are out for blood, and Kong is like the most human out of all yeah. of them. Yeah. Kong has the most complex emotions, cares about the woman, and it's heartbreaking at the end. Even as a kid, when you're watching, even yeah. though you know he's going to get shot down and the pilots, you're going, no, he's just misunderstood. I think that's one of the reasons that it is, you know, 100 years from now, people will still be talking about it. I think it. it really informed the way I think of movies and how mm -hmm. I want to make movies. I always have sympathy for the monster. 
That's true. Even when I have horrible characters that are despicable, <clears throat> I still want people to feel sympathy. It didn't matter if it was King Kong or Frankenstein or the, you always there was a sympathy factor. It wasn't just like no, that's bad what I doing bad things. But I agree. No, it's it's the tutti frutti scene in Devil's yeah. Rejects. After this motel scene that's been so intense, <laughs> when they're talking about ice cream. Tutti fucking fruity. You're just, it's funny, and you, despite yourself, you don't want to like them. But I remember you specifically, and during Devil's Rejects, talking about the charismatic bad guy and Alex from Clockwork Orange and yeah. how we like Darth Vader, how there's something. Travis that, and Taxi Travis. Travis yeah. I was always on that side. And I think, too, probably all three of us is like, we would latch on to King Kong when we little kids because you were somehow weird. And you're like, hey, I'm a good guy. Why doesn't anyone like me? You're like, no one hey, understands King, me. I'm King not Kong's scary. A good guy. Nobody likes him either. And you kind of weirdly, yeah. Yeah. I didn't, fi- I didn't figure that out till 20 years later. But it, you know, there's some weird connection that, sure, well, that you find in those movies, and I think it's because of that. It wasn't until I read the card game scene in Glorious Bastards when they're trying to guess the character of King Kong. It's like, was I brought to America in chains? I had never even put together the analogy of slavery. That it's like, you know, am I the yeah, American yeah. slave? It's like, no, I must be King Kong. It's like, oh my God. I mean, you think about that level to it, especially, you yeah, know, yeah. in 1932, 1933 when it came. So it wasn't even until Inglourious Bastards that I had, I had ever even thought about that. I always thought King Kong was a monster movie. But also, I think that's what great horror movies can do is that they work on those multiple levels when you don't even realize it. There's something about it that you connect to. Yeah. And I you think can think that, it's that. That time, the, the pre code. Or yeah. that's like you can just see it. Mm-hmm. There's some other weird level sexual thing going on all the time, and then suddenly when the code comes in, everything's so dry. Yeah, you know, it's like good it takes guy, a, bad guy, nothing's happening. It takes Everybody's a in a suit and they're boring. <laughs> but everything before that is so demented. Jaws for me was the one. That was the one that terrified me. I, I just remembered. Yeah, I was too young to see it in the theaters, so I had the book and I just read the book. <laughs> And I was eight years old imagining it, and I had to first see it on television. Oh, you, that's you've so become, sad. You are probably the most Jaws-obsessed person I know. That's, listen, that movie for me, I saw it the second day it was out. My parents went opening night. How like, were you when you saw it? Uh, 13. <sighs> okay. So it opened June 20th, and my parents went and saw it. And the next night, they're like, ah, we can take our kids to see this. It'll be fine. So I'll never forget sitting in the theater. We're walking through the, the movie theater, and the lobby cards are up. And there's one lobby card of Richard Dreyfuss' character in the cage with the shark going by, and it's, it's gigantic. And I'm just thinking, like, oh, my God. this how I was so <laughs> blown away by it. And then the movie starts, and I'll never forget. I probably saw it 15 times that mm-hmm. summer. You know, back before home video and all yeah, this yeah, stuff. Yeah. If you wanted to see a movie again, now, you had to go to the theater. The, but that was what created the phenomenon of a blockbuster. I mean, you yeah. can remember a summer before the summer blockbuster, and then you were there to see the creation yeah. of that actually happening. Dude, it was I it, remember it, it too. Amazing. I saw it when it came out. My parents took me. I was 10, and my brother was 7. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> and we, I don't even Thank think, God. I don't even think we knew what it was. The kids that went into that movie and the kids that came out were not the same. No. Did you go swimming? And you were in Massachusetts, right? Yeah. No, there was Did no you go more swimming? swimming. Oh, you were kind of close to what? where they shot even, it, too. Even what was we were that in a summer like in... Weird. What was it like in the... You're in Massachusetts in the summer. You're 10 years old. You come out of the theater in Jaws, and your parents like, we're going to the beach. How tomorrow. pissed were you? What was the beach like that summer? <laughs> there was no... No, we literally wouldn't go in the water, and it was mostly it was like, you know, most shark attacks that happened in three feet of water. Yeah, so that's I'm scary. not even risking the two feet of water. <laughs> yeah. No, it was done. One, it's over. It was over. Dry summer. Yeah, ruined it. But then we became so obsessed too yeah. because you cannot get obsessed so we would 
play Jaws. Yep. All summer. Yep. And fight and over who got to be Quint. Yep. Mm -hmm. This became our life. You know? And then you try and make a fake shark fan and go. I made a fake. Dude, I made a fake. What was your first? Tell me about the first fake shark you made. First right? fake shark. Well, here's a great story. So when I was six years old, my parents had gone fishing in the Bahamas, and they caught a nine-foot dusky shark. And it was it was taxidermy. You know, it was hanging on the basement wall in my house when I was wow. Wow. in my teens. So it's like my first sexual experience was probably underneath, underneath the shark. Underneath the shark, oh, which makes with, a lot of sense. Not with the shark. Not with the shark. Um, that was much later. But, um, but the night that I went to see Jaws, I had a dream that our basement flooded and the shark Woke came up. off the wall Sorry, and yeah. started swimming around. So for me, it was part of me. I mean, we saw Jaws and I went, hey, we, I got a shark in the basement downstairs. And we, I still have the shark, of course, it's here in LA. But it blew me away, just everything about it. It was the fear of the unknown, the fact that you would be in the water and something underneath the water could be that massive, that big, that dangerous, and has no rhyme or reason. It's not, it's not under me. The water. It's not, it's that not. Could have been under the couch by that. Yeah, I know, but yes. yeah. That's true, that's really safe. true. But it wasn't like doing it malevolently, it was just, it was, like, that's it, what it did. Jaws is pure cinema. I mean, it's, from that opening shot underwater and that music, I can't think of an opening of a movie that's more effective than that. The opening credits of that movie, just by the end of it, you're, you're terrified. Just the well, camera moving around. Tell, like, and then the shots of Christy swimming. I mean, it's, and, and then when the guy throws the stick for the dog, and then it's just like, Pippet, Pippet, yeah. you just see the yeah. stick. You're like, oh no! Just that scene, and little that Alex scene alone. on the raft yeah, in the background. That scene on the beach is, is pure Hitchcock. You know, the and the push in with the die and zoom out. And the everything, you know, like you look at the tricks that Spielberg used in that scene. Yeah. He used the diopter so that the one guy's in focus in the Let's foreground, the other person's in the background. He used everything every trick in the book to just really make sure that you saw every single thing that was happening but you could do nothing about it. The shark was still coming. It was and still not in the seeing barrels. the shark a lot was a good thing yeah. for yeah. the audience because yeah. I didn't want to see it anymore because it was too intense. That's how I felt as a kid. Yeah, yeah, never, was, I never thought it was fake looking when I was a kid. I was oh, always like, no. oh, I couldn't even look at I it. It was so terrible. But the barrels, the fact that he used those yellow barrels that pop up yeah. when you're in the water, you see it. I think the main it. thing, too, is the patience. Because they didn't know it was going to, well, maybe if they had some inkling to be a blockbuster in some sense, but they made a movie. They got amazing character actors in every single role and let him have a family and a wife and kid. Like, it wasn't like, know. get him on the boat as fast as possible and let's yeah. see some well, shark that action. Was, well, that was exactly it. You know, now the note would probably be, lose the first hour of the movie. Well, yeah. You know, but it, that's what happens to me on Meg. <laughs> What's that? That's what happens to me on Meg. We did, we did the first 30 pages of character. And yeah, like, throw it it's out. like, we loved Hooper and Quint and Brody and you the, love those guys. Yeah. And everybody, as much as you wanted to see the shark, it didn't matter. I mean, you're just so obsessed on everything. And, and you know, I, the you know, great story, I knew a lot of the effects guys that work on that movie, and they tell this great story that when the shark came out and the shark wasn't working properly, that they were like, well, we need to do something. And, it, uh, and Spielberg was like, oh, just use the barrels, and we'll just drag the barrels around. That was not yeah. intended. Wow. That was something that came up out of pure necessity to keep the, the shark alive. And by doing that, you're constantly reminded that this terrifying thing is lurking around. But don't it's such you a think, great device. I mean, we've all been there. Don't you think necessity always makes great things? Always. Because yes. the, this, I'd never get upset when someone's like, oh, it's not working. I'm like, okay, we'll just figure out something better right now. But when you have all the money in the world and all the time in the world, you just get a bland piece of crap somehow, it seems. <laughs> no, it's like, true. something yeah. about it doesn't work, and your brain goes, okay, 
I get well, it. it's like you have to like ring camera. out your brain for creativity yeah. to figure out something, and that was like the camera point of view. That was the barrels. And like, every time, don't you feel like, thank God, that was the way it went down. Had yeah. I done what I was going to do, it would have been. Awful. It never would have worked. Yeah. I mean, I had this book, The Jaws Log, written yeah. by Carl Gottlieb, <laughs> mm -hmm. and so many filmmakers I know that was their bible. It's all about <laughs> the making of the movie, and just I was obsessed with the Jaws Log. Now, yeah. for me, at that age too, I was like, I think that was the first time I was conscious of a director. Yeah. In the process of making movie because of that book and stuff. You're like Steven Spielberg. Like mm -hmm. it was like before they just kind of watched movies and you didn't really. Yeah, you didn't. I, that was one it, of the first well, films. Well, as a ten year old, you're no, really that concerned with yeah. who's in the makeup department or the art department. But only on that film did I really start knowing all the names and caring about what all the jobs were. I, yeah, it's weird. My Jaws obsession manifested itself in a different way in that I became so obsessed with Jaws that I started doing stuff for Shark Week on Discovery. I know. And I went on shark dives. <laughs> and I. I dove on this place called in Fakarava in Tahiti, where it's called the Wall of Sharks, with like 200 sharks. And I dove with tiger sharks. And I remember you telling me about diving with sharks. Great white sharks. Like, great white sharks yeah. and dark on Lava Girl. I completely got over my obsession and fear of them and realized that Jaws isn't completely mischaracterized. And one of the effects of Jaws is that it's actually allowed people to devastate the shark population in a way. So it's kind of sad. Mm. So I always want, now want to make a shark movie where the shark is well, the shark's not a bad good guy. guy, where the shark is smart, because sharks are actually sharks really, are friend. sharks are really shy. We don't taste good to them. They're not like, you know, we're, we're just eating a lot of. We're gonna make a shark movie with the King Kong thing we were talking about. Yeah, right? well, that's what I'd want to do. Wait, but you rebuilt, you were there for the 30th anniversary, mm -hmm. and you rebuilt the shark. Oh, you did? Yeah. I have. I we should have. say that, Greg. Act, Greg, you rebuilt the shark for the 30th anniversary. We, we did. They did an anniversary in Mar at uh, Martha's Vineyard, and we got hired by Universal to recreate the head of Bruce, big giant oh, cool. shark head. So I called Roy Arbogast and Joe Alves, who were the original effects guy and the original production designer, and they gave me original teeth that we stuck in, and they came by, and they're like, oh, they, Spielberg wanted a scar on the face of the shark right here so that you get the sense that the shark had been in some other fights. Like, I would have never... I saw the, the cuts. I just figured that, oh, the, the skin on the shark probably right. ripped, and they yeah. had to stitch it back together. Oh, just having that opportunity to stand in, in our shop with two of the guys that were responsible for building the shark for the movie and listening to the stories about how they dealt with it. I mean, listen, as a filmmaker, you know, imagine being, being 24, 25 years old, however old Spielberg was at the time, being on the ocean and just being like, listen, I don't want to shoot it in a tank. I want it to be real. We're going to shoot it in the ocean. Yeah. And then you're out on the ocean going, what the fuck was I thinking? Are you kidding me? Nothing works. We're going to be on the ocean and the salt water is going to dissolve everything. And, and you have these actors and all. You know, there was just, it's almost like it's a, it's a miracle that movie got done. And Spielberg talks about the fact that he thought he was going to get fired like, Every five minutes because they were so far behind schedule. Only when you're that young and that naive would you do it that way. That's what's so great. That's why you're so convinced great. that you know better than anyone. Yeah. yeah. And so I want it to be right. real. It's got to yeah. be real. American Werewolf in London was the first time I ever ran screaming from a movie theater. Wow. I remember I was. At what point? Oh, when he woke up. Scene. When he During woke up in the hospital bed, when, <laughs> I was like, I went with my. We, we begged my parents to go, and my parents were like, "We think this is a little intense." And we had heard it was kind of like a Jewish themed werewolf movie. So my parents were like, "There's like a Jewish character. It'll be funny." And I was like, "It's a guy." I, I somehow knew it was connected to Animal House, or that it was funny. That it was. This was a new kind of thing, and the poster said a comedy with bite. So they were actually, mm. no one had combined yeah. horror and humor to, to this degree the way Landis did. And I remember we sat there and like right from the opening, you know, when he throws the dart 
It's like, you made me miss. And don't go on the moors, and they're off the moors from that opening attack. I never felt so traumatized. My brothers were in tears. And my parents were mad because they were enjoying the movie and they had to like, we all had, had to, to get up. take you out? We had to oh, get up and drop God. us at Aunt Gladys' house and they went back and caught a later show. But I then finally saw that movie. I mean, that, I mean, to say that movie transformed me is an understanding. I mean, those, those makeup effects, I had never seen anything like it. I'd never, I mean, scoring it to Blue Moon, the music choices that he used, the humor. Cutting naked, to Mickey Mouse. Mickey yeah, Mouse, a naked American man stole my balloons. I yeah. mean, there were so many touches of that movie. And I remember when I was making Hostel, I had the guys backpacking, and the wardrobe girl had really screwed up, and we didn't have the coats, so we just grabbed them off the producer, like, and we're like, we're just establishing wardrobe for the movie. <laughs> and someone after the first screening was like, wow, you copied the exact coats from American Royal from London. That's how much you love horror movies. Like, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, That's funny. But uh, you, listen, I mean, there's so many great things about that movie. We'll talk about the effects in a minute, but what I loved is these two guys were real. The way they talk to each other, they're talking about the girls that they slept with, and when he's, when he's sitting in the hospital bed, and Griffin Dunn comes back, and he's like, you know who came to my funeral? And, and he's talking about this girl that was so distraught at his funeral that she found solace in Mark Levine's bed. Yeah. It's so great. <laughs> so you're listening. Specific. But he's in this horrific, mutilated face with the one dangling piece yeah. of skin that's hanging down. That's what I but remember. everything that's coming out of his mouth is like a normal conversation. So what's brilliant about what Landis did in that movie is he made it so accessible because like if you no matter how horrific, yeah, yeah. If I was if I was a, a creature, but we were still talking, like nothing at all had happened. And he's like, Jack, you're you're turning into meatloaf, and you know what's going on. And then of course, having Rick Baker design probably the most groundbreaking makeup effects, and of course the big challenge, like you were starting to say, is it was shot in bright light. Yeah, like every mm -hmm. other horror movie, yeah, yeah. the moon goes up goes until in the up until that moment. You know, you you had the the classic Wolfman with it's the dissolving, really bright. like the apartment is yeah. so bright, yeah. like too like, like so bright that you're like turn it down a little. Yeah, yeah, that whole when he's on the floor transformation thing. But I love I love the bold move of them going. Listen, this is the horror movie trope. The horror movie trope is you hide the monster in the shadows, and then it reveals itself. And it's always at night. There's always a little fog around. There's always this. American Werewolf was one of the, in the probably apartment. the first movie that there was no lights. There was and in every single angle and every you know they used and it looked editing. painful. It was the first time I remember a Screaming. werewolf. Screaming. Transformation yeah. being extremely yeah, painful. That's a great it was point. the first time I remember a transformation that just wasn't dissolves, right? Yeah. Yeah. George Folsey, who produced American Rough in London, edited Hostel yeah. and Hostel 2 for me. So he gave me tons of stories. And he told me that, and John Landis told me that the first thing they shot was the porno movie that they go to see at the porn <laughs> the theater. Part. So the whole British crew. <laughs> The first day, it's like the pizza delivery guy bringing the pizza with extra sausage, and the whole crew thought, what the hell is this movie we're making? So but as a kid, when the guy's like, when you're watching this movie, and they're in the porn theater, and the guy's like, oh, that's my wife. I've never seen you ever before in my life. <laughs> oh, sorry, wrong apartment. I was like, what is this? And then he goes, great movie. I just thought it was the and funniest was thing that they had bad porn acting okay, and see yeah, you yeah. next Wednesday, as if that was like the catchphrase yeah. at the theater. That was just the, the little details in that movie. And then the ending. And you know what that's from, right? See you next Wednesday is yes. from 2001. 
when they call when they when they call him mm. on the video phone to sing happy birthday, oh, and they go see right, you next right, Wednesday. Right. So that was Landis's <laughs> little, little homage to Kubrick really? in two thousand one. I did not know that. Was that the first time like pop music relating to the horror had been used? Like you said, Blue, Blue Moon. Moon and. The other song, I forget what other song. Bad Moon Rising. Bad Moon Rising, right. That was every, yeah, every was. song that had the word moon in it was in America, Werewolf in Except London. Except Werewolves of London. They did yes. not, yeah, they did not have <laughs> no, that one. They say that for color money. But no, that transformation, when you, when you, it just looked painful. It looked horrible. And like the ending of King Kong, that moment when Jenny Agutter comes out and she's like, David, David, and he's like, the eyes relax, and then he gets mad and they shoot it, and he's just... And you don't see him transform back. You just see them crying, and then you just see like a naked dead guy in the street, and it just cuts to blah 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 blah. Yeah, you were like, yeah, oh my god! But that ending was like, but those dream sequences and the Nazis showing yeah. up. And the I remember as a kid, I was like, the oh watching, my god, they were watching. Uh, they were watching the Muppet yeah, Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're his two, his brother and sister right. were laying on the ground watching That's the Muppet right. Show. The Nazis burst in and machine gun them. I remember that the, as a kid. Floor, was that was terrific. I was like, oh, I got to worry about this now too. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, yeah. I thought I was just gonna have to be scared of the werewolf, yeah. but now I've like, because I'm Jewish, so like the Nazis, of course, they're gonna show up at my house and machine gun me. There you go. Well, but, in the dream within a dream, when when yeah. she goes, oh, yeah, you were yeah, just yeah. having a bad dream, and Jenny Agutter goes over and she pulls the curtains open, and the demon and comes out with that Nazi great retractable knife and stabs her in the Ugh. blood. It was so shocking. And then he cuts to her on the ground and the thing on top of her stabbing in her over. body, and her body's moving on the ground. And you know, just like listen, I, I will say, Dawn of the Dead has the same feel in that those moments happen that you don't trust what's going to happen for the yeah. rest of the movie. Puts you on edge because you're like, okay, so no, anything you're, goes. You are in the hands of an unstable narrator. Yes. Anyone you get attached to, <laughs> you know. American Werewolf in London, The Howling, uh, Dawn of the Dead. Those movies were were really the age of makeup effects when filmmakers realize, wait a minute, we can do anything we want. We can show a guy turn into a werewolf. We can transform people into zombies. Up until that point, if you look at Night of Living Dead, you look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre, nothing was real. Those movies, there's nothing really on screen. It was all no. left to your imagination. Yeah. And that was the way films were made up until the mid-70s where filmmakers got really bold and really brash. They're like, screw this. We're going to show these people what's going to happen. You can have Friday a helicopter blade helicopter chop blade. someone's head off so, in half yeah, while yeah. they're walking. So makeup effects guys all of a sudden became co-stars of these movies. Yeah. You had Tom Savini, Rick Baker. Well, about Rick Baker winning an Academy Award for that. I mean, yeah. that had never well, been done Well, it's weird back then, before. too, because as kids watching them, we knew everybody's name. Like, yeah. the yeah. effects guys were just, yeah. they were actually more important than the actors. No, you saw a movie, you had Rob Bottin or Tom Savini's yeah. name on it, you knew it was going to have yeah, awesome kills. Yeah, I mean, we were all right. into what they were, well, I but guess because of Fangoria and all the magazines we were paying attention to. But the Howling, remember the first time you saw the transformation in the Howling with the bladders? But those creatures sort of retain their personality, and that ending scene of D. Wallace turning into turning a werewolf into little, on air. A little and that was like werewolf. you could change yourself at will. Whereas an American werewolf was uncontrollable and painful. These people, it's like you see it in movies like yeah. Dog Soldiers. Like It's one of those things where, oh no, now the werewolves, they can transform themselves whenever they want. And it's cool to be a werewolf. Yeah. And it's got all that classic Joe Dante humor in it. But then of course, but then like, and Rob Bottin. Okay, so Rob Bottin is what? 18, 19 years old when he does the howling. Well, he worked, you know, what ended up happening was Rick Baker and Rob were friends. So I think Rob, when he was doing the howling, was sort of 
picking Rick's brain, and Rick was helping him out a little bit. And then John Landis was like, wait a second, we're doing America War of London, what are you doing? And he was like, oh, sorry. So Rob went off and did The Howling, and Rick did America War of in London. The makeup effects were, were so critical to movies at that time that entire films were greenlit based on the fact that they had these special effects guys. So between Rob, Stan Winston, yeah. uh, Rick, Tom Savini, still to this day holds up for, for 5,000 reasons is Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. Which, which, which is to me, big. again, I went opening night, you know, in the theater. I took my girlfriend, and I think it came out, I want to say two or three weeks after E.T. came yeah. out. And I took my girlfriend to yeah, see yeah, E.T., yeah. and then I took her to see The Thing, and she sat in the theater I think they might almost they might vomiting in her hands <laughs> and was so angry at me. Why would you take me to this movie? It's so, it's so gory and it's so grotesque. Yeah. I'm like, it's... It's amazing. What are you talking about? Well, the timing is what killed the movie. Right? Yeah. Because everybody's so E.T. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody, and they, you know, that theory of people don't like seeing movies set in winter because they don't like to think about being cold. <laughs> imagine but shooting that movie. That movie. Could you that imagine movie how cold it was? was? I was so obsessed with it. I remember recording it on VHS and going frame by frame and actually animating it, like drawing the thing. I wanted to draw... You know, the Norris trance. I, I, was, I was completely yeah. obsessed, and I wanted to know what happened, and I wanted to know what the Blair monster was, and I wanted to know what had been cut out. Yeah, I mean, me, that was me that too. just that for, for many years. I mean, it was like that in The Shining, like The Exorcist, like the greatest. It's like the holy grail of horror movies. It's a perfect movie. From the Bill Lancaster screenplay to the dogs, as soon as they have the dogs, you just start worrying. As a camera, I was worried, and those weird tentacle things that came out of it. I mean, Cabin Fever, my first film, was completely a freaking ripoff of the thing. I mean, there's, it's more <laughs> the of a remake of the yeah, thing. Yeah, it's, it's just like putting someone out in the shed. It's like I like went sequence for sequence. We're going to cook our own meals. I mean, I literally was just like... I, and and it's, it's weird how when you're shooting a film, you don't always consciously do this, but then you go back and rewatch, and you're like, oh, my God, I completely took that. <laughs> I think everybody uh, must on their first film. You're just so excited. Yeah, you want to try what you've been influenced yeah. by your yeah. whole life. And then you see it, you go, okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> you're not consciously doing it, I don't think. You're just so... You just but the do thing, it it's ingrained. You, you know, the, you remember what the I blood, love about that. Do you remember the, I mean, the first... I don't think it ever jumped so hard as the blood test scene. Oh, when you, when you see the... And you see the scalpel go... And cut into... It's still one of those painful things in movies. Do you remember when you saw oh, yeah, it? Yeah, where yeah. you saw it? Yeah. I don't remember so much for some reason. But how are you Carpenter and you do Halloween and you change everything with that movie? And then you do Escape from New York. Well, here's, here's the thing. I mean, the, the, the amazing thing about it is I've had this conversation with John and he, and he would say, listen, I'm a filmmaker. My job is... I, I have stories to tell. I'm not necessarily, it's always not always going to be a horror movie. It might be Starman, and then it might be Big Trouble in Little China, and then it might be The Thing. That's what he wanted to do. That was the story he wanted to tell at that time, that it was bleak, that, that it was hopeless, that it was paranoid. And, you know, I think the amazing thing about that was when they were designing the effects, John and Rob talked about it, and from the story that I, I've heard over and over again, they just basically said... It's an alien that is absorbed from every planet it's ever gone to. It can be whatever you want. There was not the script never describes what the thing looks like. Yeah. In the Norris transformation, it's like yeah, the the shoe rips open and there's a clawed foot in there. They never described it. So Rob really hired Mike Plug and hired these great artists and kind of went to town. And John was like, yeah, man, it could be whatever you want. To and he was to be. He was so attacked for that movie. They yeah. called him a pornographer of violence. Ugh. And then. When we started making our movies, 
the term torture porn came out. Oh, which is, I'll give you that one. <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> all right, I'll take that one. <laughs> that one started with you. Yeah, but I jumped on that. Track. I remember like a pornographer of violence. So that's stupid. And then it was so idiotic. But but that's literally what they called him. And that's why he made Starman after. Afterwards, that's and right. make a comedy. I remember the reviews, too, because that's like when you'd watch the local news and they'd yeah. review whatever you're yeah, excited to see. Yeah, Siskel and Ebert yeah, or whatever. you were excited to see a yeah. scene from it because it was so hard to get information on anything. And it'd be like, you know, they'd badmouth all the characters. There's no characters, no character development. Everything's this. And it's just such a bunch of nothing. The way that, you know, I mean, now it's a classic. <clears> and I, It's horrible when these things are just destroyed and then... Well, don't yeah. you find they get rediscovered? They get so it was celebrated, good. but that's like yeah. everything. But else don't you close. find that in a really effective horror movie, blood stains the critics' eyes? Like once you get blood yes. in your eyes, yes, you can't wash it out. They can't see anything else oh, yeah, other yeah. than the kill, and they also feel like if they like the movie, that they're endorsing that for real or that kind of violence. Yeah. So, so most often those reviews just become a soapbox. We're like, look, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I don't like this sort of thing. But the truth is, totally. we love it. It's like it's it's the enjoying fantasy, enjoying a scary story. It's like it's, well, it's no different from the filmmaking tales. involved. Because yeah. then they'll hype on, not to get into this, but you know, it's like there's so much that goes into making a movie like that. Yeah. And then there's something else you go, that looks like a, a student film that anybody could make in two seconds. And you're looking at this colossal this beautiful thing. Albert Whitlock matte painting. Yeah, and, and those it's cool shots and crazy design. It's, I'll tell you, it's, it's a tribute to every person that worked on that movie and to John's tenacity for wanting to make that movie great. And, you know, what's interesting is when you're talking about reviews, In Cinefantastique was the only magazine that went, this movie, 20 years from now, people are going to recognize the impact of the, really? this movie had. They were the one magazine that went, I don't care what anybody else is saying, this movie's brilliant. And John Carpenter really told a story for the ages. And also, that was a horror movie with an open ending. <clears throat> That you didn't see. It was always that the, the either the killer was dead and then popped up. You know, it was the Halloween ending. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you're sitting there and it's Childs and Kurt Russell, when McCready and Childs are sitting there, and it's like, well, I guess we'll just have to find out. You came out of the movie going, well, McCready was a thing. No, McCready couldn't have been a thing. Right. Well, he could have been a thing. Well, Childs was a thing. Well, if he was a thing, why didn't he just show himself? Well, maybe he wanted to freeze. Well, the fact that we're still arguing about it all these years and later. If you ask John, he'll still be like, well, what do you think? Like, he will yeah. never, you will never go he'll into never the conversation. He'll never give you the you. explanation of what the direction was. But a great cast, too. Listen, let's not, let's not forget that all you these did. horror movies no. that we're talking about are classics and they're successful, not only because of the great horror elements and the directors and the effects, but there are characters you give a shit about. There are I people know. that you care T.K. about. Carter. Every single guys. person Richard in all Mazur, these movies, Kurt you Russell. care about them. You care about Kurt Russell. He's the everyday man that you really want to, that you he's really want to see. Yeah, he's playing chess. He's like, you cheating bitch. And he dumps his scotch so into, the, into the computer, this, the 1980 like computer. They are cast by the director. Yes. To get the right person for the right part. Yes. Not cast by a studio. Absolutely. Well, get remember, somebody who's young and pretty and get this guy because he's hot. And, <clears> you know, it's just like a interesting character well, actors who can bring every little role to life. I've wanted to do a film festival. Lasts. Yeah, yes. I wanted to do a film festival called The Terrible 90s where you just pick the worst of these movies <laughs> where they were literally like, oh, get the person from Party of Five, get the person from Dawson's Creek. Like, it's exactly that. They, they were like, oh yeah, no, they're like, you need, I remember with Cabin Fever, they were like, if you can get this actor from Roswell, we'll give you a million dollars. I was like, what? Like, that was the qualification. They're like, they have a very big fan base. I mean, it's... Yeah, as opposed Whereas to back then, picking they, the yeah. people that, that, you know, look at The Exorcist and 
Max von Sydow and Linda Blair and Jason Miller and like these movies resonate because there's something about these characters that you can identify with and you believe. Yeah, it's exactly. not like somebody that you saw on Party of Five that now all of a sudden. Well, there was also a feeling that if there was an older person in a movie or an adult, <coughs> the teenagers wouldn't want to go yeah. see the movie. Which ridiculous. is ridiculous because ridiculous. we were all that age once, and I, know. I didn't. I wanted to see Clint Eastwood. I didn't want to see me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to see, you know, like I don't want to see some dopey kid. But I was a dopey kid. I wanted to watch somebody cool. But your first music shows. I mean, not to go too far into this, but I'm curious. Like, I always felt like your your artwork, your music, your whole appearance, everything. Taking the name of your band. I mean, were you? It was like you were trying to do, mix music and a live horror movie or that kind of crazy aesthetic. It was just everything I loved, and I was like, how can I do all of it at the same time? Let's start with the obvious, Rob Zombie. Yeah, from the Van right White Zombie. He's right there. Um, tell us about where did it start? What was the first one? Did you start with White Zombie or was it Dawn no, of the White Dead Zombie or Night of Living Dead? After I'm try- I can't remember if I saw Night of Living Dead first or Dawn of the Dead. I think I saw Night of Living Dead first. It, it was, was that was the one, the only one that ran on like Channel 68. I never it was, like, saw it. Never television. ran on TV. It was one of those things. I think I was like 16 <clears> and it was playing in the next town. Oh, and right. I, it was at midnight. I remember this clearly, and I didn't have have a car, so I rode my bike two hours. <laughs> wow! In the dark, <laughs> by myself, past the cemetery. Yeah, watched the movie. I was like, "This is the greatest thing ever made." Now I got a two-hour ride home on my bike. Holy shit! Like, that, but you guys did that. You oh do yeah, anything to see yeah, the movie. Like, oh, if I don't watch yeah. it tonight, I may never never see, see it. it again. Who knew what was going to happen? Same thing with Dawn of the Dead. It played one night at a midnight showing. Yeah, and it was like. Ugh. Great, I mean, like you, so, I mean, you're oh, from Pittsburgh. I listen, I, rem- I remember it like it was. Well, you know, the amazing thing for me was there was a show that was on Saturday night called Chiller Theater, and it was hosted by a guy named Bill Cardell. Bill Cardell played the newscaster right, in right. Night of Living Dead. So before Dawn of the Dead came out, Bill Cardell invited George Romero to be a guest on his show. They played Night of Living Dead uncut on television in Pittsburgh. Wow. And then they did an interview with George and showed clips from Dawn of the Dead before it had come out. And I'll never forget, I sat, I was, I was in sixth grade. My best friend, we were staying overnight. He was staying over because we we're going to watch Night of Living Dead. And I'll never forget, we had this toy gun. <laughs> and, and you would get, we played this game. You get six shots to shoot zombies, and then you had to give the gun to your friend, and you were unarmed. So every scene, <laughs> every scene that there were no zombies in, you're like, okay. Yeah. And as soon as zombies come, you have six shots, and so I had get, to give the gun to my friend, and then wait, I had to just, the movie. as we were watching the movie. <laughs> you know, the Evans City Cemetery, where they shot that, was 20 minutes from my house yeah. in Pittsburgh. So for me, it was, I always joke about the fact that there's something in the water there. It's like the yeah, crazies, yeah, yeah. you know? It's like George That's Romero. Funny. So everywhere that you would, you would go in Pittsburgh in the 70s, you knew somebody that was a zombie. You knew somebody that was involved with George Romero's movies, and that's how I got into the business. Because when Day of the Dead came along, I had befriended George because of some mutual family friends, and he's like, hey, I'm doing a sequel to Dawn of the Dead. Do you want a job? I'm like, I was going to be a doctor, but this sounds way better. I'm in. It almost feels like the zombie movie, there's like a quantum leap that happens where there are different phases, like the 1930s and 40s, it was the I walked with a zombie, it was white zombie, it was the hypnotist zombie, it was a mad scientist on an island that has found a way to raise the dead and enslave them, or King of the Zombies, if you've ever seen that one, (laughs) Mantan Moreland, one of the most (laughs) unbelievably racist films ever made. Well, I just want to hear about white zombie. 
naming the band the movie was the was the did you like the name of the movie? Was that a big influence on you, or was it just it was you felt I, I mean, it felt I, right for the band? I love the movie, but it just sounded classic. Yeah, you know, you're yeah. To, you're tr- I was trying to find something that sounded. It was like Black Sabbath, like what the yeah. perfect name for a band. <laughs> and and I saw White Zombie. I was like, that's the. Per- I didn't even have a band at the time, but I had in my mind if I ever oh, have a band, that's, that's, that's the perfect oh, that's name awesome. for a band. <laughs> I hope nobody steals it before I get there. It's amazing, you know. It and your whole look on stage and the design of that makeup. It's incredible. It just all sort of came from that one idea, you know. But it's incredible what a title can spark like that. I, the first thing I saw was Night of the Living Dead. I remember it was because that was that you used to run on free television because it was a public domain movie because they never registered yeah. it. The quantum leap happens when George Romero makes Night of the Living Dead, and he really creates the rules. I mean, the whole thing of like if you get bit, you turned into one. Yeah. Shoot him in the head. Mm-hmm. They'll come back. Like. That is a new definition. It's like he completely created zombies a new before that. Were, zombies were before that were the Haitian voodoo. Haitian, you're brought back by voodoo. You brought by mad scientists. Boring. Yeah, they yeah. didn't do. They didn't do no, much. They showed they just, up and they were just. They were just. It was like it would be like kill him, and the zombie would. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was basically having a brainless slave that would do anything on command. But George Romero zombies was like. I mean, the things that he said. I mean, to do that movie in 1968. You look back now, and the things he was saying about race. And about class, and about color, and the way he ends the movie. I mean, there's so many levels to that film. Interestingly enough, he doesn't copyright it. So now every zombie movie after that takes the tropes from him, they don't have to pay royalties on it. But the fact that it wasn't copywritten meant that basically every public television station could get the movie and run it for free. So Which, the proliferation of yes. that movie is like the very thing that caused him to never make money off of it is the very thing that helped it become Then made it become a, a phenomenon. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, after that, <clears throat> suddenly a zombie was a thing. But before George Romero's, like, you shoot him in the head. If yeah. they bite, you'll get bit back. That didn't exist before. And those, ru- and those rules have become part of pop culture. If you go back and read Frankenstein or you read Dracula and you go, okay, here's the origin of Frankenstein. Here's the origin of werewolves and here's the origin Silver of Dracula. And Dracula yeah, <clears throat> all that thanks. stuff. That was all created hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The rules for the modern day zombie were created 50 years ago. By George Romero. Yes. And then he takes almost the sensibility of Italian horror by partnering with Dario Argento. Yeah and using Goblin to score the movie and creates one of the most, I remember seeing Dawn of the Dead as a kid, not really understanding the difference between 16 millimeter or low budget or 35 millimeter, just thinking this doesn't look like Star Wars. This doesn't look like yeah, yeah. Harrison Ford movies. Mm-hmm. Like there's just something. It looked like Dario's just, movie. This is there's just something different about the way this movie looks, the way it sounds. Gretchen Ross, Ken Fari, like uh, Scott Reininger, like the cast that's in it. Oh yeah. And it just, felt like it was really happening. Well, it kind of goes back to what you were saying when you were watching American Werewolf, where you're like watching, like, who made this? Like a yeah. maniac? Yeah. <laughs> like, I remember going to see it for the first time. It was like a sold-out midnight screening, maybe 1980 or something. And the crowd was so rowdy watching the movie. From the Once that guy's head exploded, it was all over. And it was like the crowd seemed dangerous, the movie seemed dangerous, yes. the seats seemed dangerous, everything about it seemed so de- degenerate. Like a, you, degenerate. Thought, you thought yeah, you were going to And it ends with stabbed. a biker gang yeah. taking over yeah, the mall where these kept, people have lived. It was like, oh, it was crazy. Then it, it just kept getting crazier yeah. and crazier. But at the same time, I wasn't drawn to the craziness. It was the main characters I was so into. Like, I was so in their heads and so, like, I was trapped in that mall and I was, you know what I mean? No, it's sad. It when he gets bit. Crazy gore for When he gets bit nothing, and you know? you know he's going to come back and yeah, he's got to I mean, shoot his friend. I mean, that is the most 
overused cliche in zombie movies now is yeah, the yeah. friend gets bit and I'm gonna, you know, in the other room I have to take him out. It was all the scenes like when they're shopping and playing video games. But you games got to watch them have fun. It's, yeah. like, it's like he yeah. took this contained world. It's interesting, you know, hearing him talk about it later when he said that he got the idea, he was at the mall and he just thought like a bunch of people wandering around like zombies and thought, God, after they're dead, they're just gonna come back here and, and shop. And this, this movie becomes this incredible metaphor for consumption and the phenomenon yeah. of malls that was happening at the time and that people just wanna consume and consume and consume that the layers of social commentary, I remember as a kid watching that movie, in the first 20 minutes, there's a SWAT team raiding a house, yeah, yeah. and one of the police officers is unbelievably racist, and is like throwing, just shouting out every racial slur in the book. And I was like, why is this guy concerned with racism? Like, there's zombies in the building. Right. There are people coming back from the dead. Why is oh, this yeah, yeah. guy like so concerned with taking out the Hispanics? It was unbelievable. I was like, aren't there bigger problems? It was amazing, but that's what he was going for. That's yeah. what he was infusing. And, and like the chaos at the television station. The chaos it just, at the TV station. It was yeah. ins- you just were like, what is this movie? What are, and that scene in the basement where the people, they're all being kept alive. Well, and that, I remember when I first saw it, that tenement building scene, I wasn't sure exactly what was going on, so I was kind of on edge because you see the two guys talking. It was like, yeah, they got them all holed up in one building. And you're like, wait, why? Why are they holed up? And what's ha- what did they do? What's happening? Yeah, and, and you think about the fact that martial law is in effect, oh, yeah. and you're going, wait a minute, there's a zombie outbreak, and people refuse to leave. So by staying in their building, the SWAT team's like, we know better. We're going to go in and we're going to take them out. The one-legged priest who lived in Pittsburgh, and I used to see him walking up oh, and down wow. the street. I'd be like, <laughs> so when the dead walks in your, and I was like, that's yeah. the guy, he's right there. Um, and he goes, they still believe there's respect in dying. And when you find all the people in this building, and we realized that everybody that was in the tenement building, the reason they didn't leave is because they didn't want to leave the people that they lost. So they yeah. put their bodies in the basement. So then when Ken Foray and Scott Reininger go downstairs, there's like one zombie with like a rosary wrapped around its hand chewing on a foot. It's it was just like, so oh, creepy, that it's horrible. basement. Dawn of the Dead, we got to talk about the holy trinity of George Romero, Dario Argento, and Tom Savini at probably, arguably, their creative peaks at the same time working together. You can imagine the three of them just one-upping each other. I mean, there's never been anything like it. I remember Dawn of the Dead, I'd never seen that level of a body count in a movie no. in such different ways. Like, normally, one movie, there'd be one kill that was amazing. And it was like every 30 <clears throat> seconds, it was like, oh my God, the helicopter, every time they stopped somewhere, each kill was different. Like, the, that helicopter blade, yeah. pulling it off the you head. of the giant forehead. Which, which giant when you were a kid, by the forehead. way, when you're a kid, you never see that coming. You see he staggers out, and his head is this. A zombie. He's you, just, yeah, you, didn't, you never yeah. put two and two together. Now you look at it and go, oh, of course he's going to get his head cut off. Yeah, that movie but back then, And with the blood so pressure machine, epic. with the arm, oh, yeah, so and great. the detail, the arm getting chopped off, and the blood. It's brilliant. The, yeah, I mean, I remember the thing I thought, remember at the time, too. It was like, it seemed so epic, because the movie was kind of long. Yeah, yeah, very long. Compared to most horror movies. And no, it was like Gone with the Wind of Horror. Yeah, it really was. It felt that way. And it just kept going and going. I'm like, wow, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm still <laughs> two hours, watching the two-hour bike ride home. home. Yeah. Still going. But it, it was, there was so much to it because it was so much with the characters and so much, yeah, so much bloody chaos. One of the things that did so well is, first of all, the claustrophobia, keeping it contained, all the people. They, 
they really got the extras to pull it off. Yeah. Like you felt like the world had turned into an apocalypse. And then when they had to go across to the trucks and get the supplies and he gets bit in the leg, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, you, you, you can't feel believe it. You, and you know, again, what's great about the rules that he has set up is it's not like a movie where someone gets shot and they're like, oh, I wonder if they're going to make it. <laughs> the minute that he's bit, yeah, it's like you ticking, know he's gone. Bomb. It's a ticking time bomb. And then you're it just is. waiting. And as you see him start to deteriorate and they're playing the video games and he's got the gun uh, and they're shooting the ducks. Remember that old game? Duck hunt. And then all of a sudden he's driving the race car and something happens for a second and you realize that he's kind of starting to... Yeah, and he has that weird look on his face. Yeah. Like goofy hat. Yeah, like, yeah. And he starts he losing like kind of his faculties yeah, you for feel, a second. He looks the, a little drunk. But that was, I mean, it's watching. It was Scott Reininger, Ken Fari, Galen Ross. It was the three of them because you hadn't seen them in other movies before. Yeah. Because you, one of the great things about these movies is they use regional actors. Yeah, and that you know, was what like, George was great at. George always cast these great mm-hmm. actors. And it was iconic. But I, I had just had never seen that kind of mayhem. And then when Savini comes in and acts in the movie, yeah. as a biker, you're like, that's the dude who came up with Blade. this stuff. And His the chest Blade. being ripped open. But then I remember going to see Day of the Dead thinking, how are they going to one-up this? So what was it like... You're living in Pittsburgh. You're going to be a doctor. Yeah. So you already know about anatomy. Yeah. I don't know. General practice. I don't know. You're Maybe. living in Pittsburgh. Heart specialist, I think. Your favorite movie is Dawn of the Dead. You become friends with Romero, and he's like, I'm making another one. It, I, I, you know what? It, I remember the date. I went down to have lunch with him. It was July 23rd, uh, <laughs> 1985, which is, you know, seemed like it was yesterday. And he goes, hey, man, we got, we got the green light. The, my whole Romero connection came about because I, I had an uncle named Sam Nicotero, who was a local actor in Pittsburgh, and he wrote for Cinefantastique. He was a DJ on the radio, and he played a part in The Crazies. Like the coolest uncle ever. Yeah. Like a DJ, yeah. Cinefantastique, and actor in The Crazies. So when I met George, I said, oh, Sam Nicotero, that's my uncle, Greg. And he went, oh, hey, I was 14. And he's like, hey, you know what I mean? If we ever shoot, you know, come down visit. So I used to go and visit their offices, and, and that's how George and I became friends. I didn't even really meet Tom until Creepshow, when they were filming, oh, wow. I went to visit. Hmm. But the whole thing about it was, just like Rob Bottin in The Thing, having an effects guy given the complete freedom to just come up with whatever kind of gags you can come up with. And, and outdo yourself and, then, and outdo and every outdo other movie. Yourself. Yeah. There really and, wasn't anything else to reference, right? No. Because every time they did something, it was sort of the first time you'd seen a machete in somebody's head or something. The yeah. disembowelments in Day of the Dead are unmatched. I mean, you think about what what was it about that? And you're acting in the movie too. Yeah, but you got to think you got to think about the way that Tom designed things because he approached he's a, a huge Lon Chaney fan, but uh-huh. he approached everything like it was a magic trick. So they used reverse photography like the machete in the yeah. head, you know, that they had a machete and they cut out a little crescent and they put and it on the guy's head. I remember you tell me they do, you did it in reverse. putting a fake arm on an amputee. Yeah, we did that in Day of the Dead. Um, but, you know, the idea that you're you're taking a special effect and you're deconstructing it to the point where it's got to be a magic trick that's going to fool the audience. Well, can I tell you, I always thought of special effects as magic tricks. I never thought of it as real violence. It was like sawing, the magician sawing the woman in half, but you're really seeing them get sawed in half. Yes. Uh, without a doubt, and that's why you get into but people who, who watch movies and get, get offended by the, the gore, and you're like, well, you know, it's Corn syrup and red powdered food coloring. It's interesting because people talked about sort of the next quantum leap in zombie movies as 28 Days Later because it had running zombies. 
even though they were running infected in Umberto Lenzi's Nightmare City from 1980. <laughs> but I love you. That, that being said, sort of, it was sort of known 28 days later. But for me, 28 days later turned into Day of the Dead. It became the military it compound. Did. Absolutely, it became the same movie. Yeah, I was like, well, wait, didn't ever? And, and maybe Alex Garland was the only one who saw that. But for horror fans, we're like, George Romero did it. He was it was. It was. Yeah, listen, ago. 28 days later was. Day of the Triffids and Day it's of the Dead. It's a great movie, but it it's was a great movie. It was Day of the Dead. Yeah, I remember yeah. coming out of there going, "Yeah, it was great, but I don't want to be a bummer." But it's kind of a rip off. Yeah, <laughs> totally and then Bob. The the so what was? What were some of the makeup effects? You remember? Well, doing Day of the, the listen, Dead. Day of the Dead. It was intended to be George Romero's ten million dollar opus. Right. So it was set on a tropical island where you had this one guy named Gasparilla who controlled. You know, it ended up being part of Land of the Dead. Yeah, with Dennis Hopper's um, character. Yeah. yeah. Dennis Running, Hopper's Running character and these people that were living in Florida and got on a boat and the boat took them to this island and they realized that this doctor there was actually feeding the zombies human meat to try to control them to create an army of zombies. That was the original intent for Day of the Dead. I still have the original script that we prepped from. And then what happened is something we haven't even talked about, which is the ratings board. In right. the 80s. Ugh. Because Salah Hassanai and the producer realized that they weren't going to be able to get a wide distribution for Day of the Dead. So they couldn't raise the money that they wanted. So they said, listen, we can't get you 8 to $10 million to do this movie. We can get you $3 million. So George had to go in during our prep while we were already prepping wow. the movie. From, and he had to go through third. and cut the script. Any of the gags that we started building that were supposed to be in the movie, he wrote them in. And then everything else was sort of free reign. So I ended up playing a character, and I, my head comes back as a zombie head in Day of the Dead. That was in the original script. So they kept that gag and wrote it into, the, wrote it into the, the revised draft. And I always remember that as we were making that movie, I always felt like it was a little sad that we couldn't make the movie that, that we wanted to make. Uh, the fact that people loved it and it's become such a great cult horror movie is uh, indeed a, a tribute to George, but it was always that feeling of like, man, he really wanted to make this this magnificent end to his trilogy, and just budgetarily, because of everything that the ratings board was doing to effects, yeah, mostly effects in horror movies. Well, that's really what happened. Us. I mean, I think My Bloody Valentine was the first one that really got hit hard. I mean, there was such a backlash to the gore and the violence and what we call, you know, that sort of 1978 to 1983, 84, that golden era of horror. It was the Reagan assassination attempt. That was it. It's John Hinckley shooting Reagan. When President Reagan got shot, it was everyone blamed movie violence. That was the easiest way to pinpoint NRA. Everyone pointed it like, it's the movies. It's these violent horror movies, which had become a phenomenon. Every studio right. was making them. Yeah. And the first movie that really got butchered was My Bloody Valentine. So all of a sudden, Jack Valenti, the MPAA, they, they started pulling way back on violence. Kind of Nightmare on Elm Street was the last one to sort of get away with more violence because it was more fantastic. But all of a sudden, you had these movies that were unrated. And the unrated movies, a lot of theater chains... Mother's movies, Day... Your Mother's Day, yeah, mm -hmm. Gates of Hell, the mm -hmm. Italian stuff that was coming over. It was kind of right before the, the video boom. So, you know, if you had a movie like Day of the Dead, the only way to really do it is to do it unrated, but a lot of theaters wouldn't play it. Yeah, I mean, I remember when Dawn of the Dead came out, they couldn't advertise on television before 11 p.m. Yeah. So in Pittsburgh, they were obviously marketing the movie pretty prominently because George was from Pittsburgh. And my friend and I, who watched Night Living Dead together, 
uh, would stay up till 11 o'clock and flip channels just to see the 30-second TV spot yeah, for Dawn of the Dead. It well, was like, you know, in 1968 yeah, and the heads rising. The Tonight Show or something, then yeah. a spot would come on. Yeah. Let's talk about sort of where zombie movies went from there because it felt like there was really a rebirth with Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake where you had a studio doing a $35 million budget movie with running zombies that was incredibly violent, but he could finally do those massive, massive crowd mm -hmm. scenes. And then, all of a sudden, horror television starts taking off because you have FX and AMC and all of these networks start showing. You know, I remember when people used to come to me and say, in the kind of mid-2000s or after Hostel, saying, can you make us a violent TV series? And I'd say, well, what makes horror work is you, is you have the threat of killing your characters, and what TV makes TV work is you want to see those characters every week, so you can't right. have them almost die, and I could never do the violence I wanted yeah, to yeah. do. Cut to Here we are. Greg Nicotero and The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead, for sure, is the next cultural milestone, really, since Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead, and you know that's really been you. I mean, well, listen, I, I, I will attribute the, the rebirth of the zombie genre, honestly, to video games. Because wow. Resident Evil and House of the Dead, think about this You're for right. a minute. Yeah, you put a third-person shooter gun into a, a kid's hand and he can shoot zombies. That was before Dawn of the Dead. That right. was even before 28 Days Later. I remember when it was that time when the Resident Evil movie, 28 Days Later, but for mm -hmm. years before that, the Resident Evil video game and the House of the Dead video game. So I think what happened was all of a sudden, the zombie genre, which traditionally had probably sort of died out yeah. a little bit, and then all of a sudden you have all these zombie video games, and they're like, shit, man, people love shooting zombies. Then they make Resident Evil. Then they make Dawn of the Dead remake. Then Simon and the guys make Shaun of the Shaun Dead. Shaun of the Dead. So it's now the all of a sudden... Zombies. Wasn't spun. 28 Days Later kind of an isolated incident? It didn't seem like it kicked off. But well, 28 Days Later came out before the Dawn of the Dead remake, so that's was, what energized the zombie genre. But it was 2003, genre. which was the year that we helped bring R-rated horror back. I remember the first one was House of a Thousand Corpses, and they only released it with a million P&A on 1,200 screens, and it made like $12 million. So that, and I remember Cabin Fever trailered on it, but that was a huge deal, because they told us, no one will go see an R-rated horror movie, you can't make more than $15 yeah. million. And they just, his movie exploded, and then they're like, oh, we should have put more money into right. it. And they opened it on, I remember, like 768 screens. I got, then they're like, let's put Cabin Fever on 2000, and those were their top grossing movies of the year. But that summer, in between, yeah. was June of 2003, it was Twin totally It went to Lionsgate because Universal was like, we don't want to make these movies. I don't, I don't even know how I made it there because they yeah. didn't want it when it was done. Because they just weren't doing it. They're like, we don't do this. Right. You know, and they only released like they four movies know. wide a year. And two of them were, and then they started doing four horror movies a year. But I remember it was April, it was House of a Thousand Corpses. June was 28 Days Later. It was 2003. September was Cabin Fever. October was Michael Bay's Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, which was makes $80 million. Yep. And, and then in August, before that, Freddy vs. Jason makes like $90 million. And then in March of 2004 was when Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead comes yeah. out. And it was a it was, And then Shaun of the Dead. And then Shaun of the Dead comes came out, out a couple months a couple yeah. months later. So I always felt that 28 days later added that sort of adrenalized zombies. That's yes. really those guys were really the ones that in 28 days later invented fast zombies. And in the you know sort of fast cutting video game yeah. world of that's what made Dawn of the Dead I think so accessible because of the the style that, that Zach shot the movie and the fact that it opened 
you know, with this little girl. But you know, that the opening scene yeah. to me was the, the, the best scene. The best scene in the in the movie. Scene. I argue Quentin and I argue about that movie often. But that opening scene really sets the pace for the movie. But The Walking Dead. Just okay, about, so let's have a Walking Dead. I was just on my I way. I mean, there, it used so. to be if you think about the zombie movies, it was you riding your bike for two hours to go see it. It was <laughs> yeah. me watching it at a sleepover at midnight. It was you and your friends seeing midnight. My brothers, kids. 10 years old, five years, they watch Walking Dead. Kids eight years old watch Walking Dead. What is it about Walking Dead that zombies have become so almost normalized that kids love it, they don't take it seriously? I think it's amazing. Walking well, Dead plays like a family show. It's, I'll tell you, again, it's, it's all about the characters. It's all about, you know, I mean, Frank Darabont and I, who've been best friends for years, had wanted to do a zombie show or a zombie movie, and he just kept saying, I've never found the right story. I've never found the story that you could tell in two hours that would give you enough information about that world. So when Walking Dead came about, I was like, wait a minute, you can follow this group of people as they struggle to survive week after week after week after week. You can see them live, you can see them die, you can see everything that they go through. So Walking Dead is basically a Western Mm-hmm. With, with the zombie uh, apocalypse set as the backdrop. And when, when they were selling the show, that was the big question was the studios were like, well, how are you going to do the zombies? I mean, we love the story, but how are you going to do it? And he was like, listen, I got this guy, Greg Nicotero. He literally grew up with this in his blood. If there's anybody that's going to be able to pull off zombies for The Walking Dead, it's going to be him. Because we're not talking about a couple of zombies. It's like normally you'd prep a movie for, you can be 12 weeks of prep, it can be you know, four months of prep. We're talking about you now have to zombify the population in nine for days. 13 yeah. episodes yeah. in nine days. Like what yeah. was asked of you hadn't previously, you're talking about like Matt, it's like you could spend months and months building one car, but now it's like you have an assembly line and they all have to look great and they all have well, to look yeah, different. You must have known everyone's expecting movie quality yes. effects on TV, and, which and is kind of odd. It was, it was crazy, but you know, the, the team that Frank Darabont and Gail Ann Hurd put together was a team of people that had experience bringing cinematic quality. You right. know, David Tattersall, the DP, The Walking Dead pilot looks like a movie. Yeah. yeah totally. And we ended up, and I always say, we shoot a movie every week. But I think one of the other things that made Walking Dead special was the first interaction with the bicycle girl zombie, the half zombie mm-hmm. in the park. Rick Grimes walks up and kneels next to her and says, I'm sorry this happened to you. You felt emotion and you felt a connection to a creature that up until that point had always been this unstoppable flesh-eating ghoul that you would have to shoot it in the head or separate the head from the body. So all of a sudden you realize that these people were living in a world where it was besieged by zombies but that they still were able to to find some compassion in humanity. And the show is about what you're willing to do to preserve your humanity. And we're eight years into it, and it's always about that. And obviously the, the irony is, who are the walking dead? Is it the actual zombies or is it the people? Right, right. Uh, and what, what level of that these people are willing to do, what are they willing to do to each other to survive? And that's, Yeah, at what point you know, do you lose your humanity? Right. I, I always felt that that first walker in the first episode 
it was important for us to sort of get out of the gate big. So we had, you know, we, we had originally, everyone, I, what I loved about it was everyone was like, it was a puppet, it was digital, it was, there was a hole in the ground and she was hidden. People couldn't figure out how we did it. All yeah. they knew is that they saw something they had never seen before on television and they were like, how the heck did they build this girl that crawled around with entrails dangling out of her? I was so proud of the fact that people, in a day and age where it's really easy to find out how something's done, because yeah, yeah, you yeah. go, you know, when we were kids, yeah. you'd have to scour Weightless famous magazines. monsters, yeah. and you'd have to look at, like, what's on the workbench? Yeah. When they're, when yeah. they're yeah. little pictures trying to dissect. Yeah, or Rob Bottin saying, oh, I used melted bubble yum on the thing monster, and you're just, like, you're, you're ravenous for it. The fact that we were able to Do you remember to, how you did create, I mean, when you did that? Yeah. How did you do it? The the makeup, <laughs> yeah. It was a it was a makeup on a girl. We cast her her chest, her back. We built, uh, you know, every makeup uh, in the show has custom teeth and contact lenses, and we built the teeth on the outside of her lips, so that when you look at pictures of corpses or skulls or anything, mm-hmm. the teeth are always exposed. It's like right. teeth are the zombie or zombie's primary weapon. So you always want to see the teeth. You don't want to see zombies with their mouths closed. So we created dentures that sat on the outside of her lips and then the prosthetic that went over so it had this horrible grimace contact lenses we put a bald cap on her and she had this stringy hair uh, and then she was wearing a green leggings and we erased her legs and we digitally added the hip bone and a couple entrails that were basically trailing on the ground it's amazing um, I remember when AMC was promoting the show, the first image that they released was that an image of that girl. It's on the back of my, it's on the back of my phone. Look, see that picture right oh, there. Yeah, that was, was it. the first image that they ever released, and people were like, How? "Wait a minute, what? I've never seen it. That's on television. How do you do that?" And then you started directing the episodes. What I, kind of thrill was that? Because <clears throat> I know, I mean, as long as I've known Greg, who did the effects on Cabin Fever and Hostage, we've known each other fifteen years now. He was always gonna planning that feature script to direct or something direct and then you locked into Walking Dead and it's it's incredible like not only exact producing and writing like making the jump to directing it's incredible well I, I always look at all of us if you look at this group of filmmakers that are all roughly our age we all grew up with the same diet of mm-hmm. Aurora Monster Models Ray Harryhausen Planet of the Apes Dick Smith Famous monsters. Yeah, Yeah, and there was just a little slight nudge that made you a musician and then a director and then a writer and a director or a special effects guy. So that's why I say if you you put anybody around this table, Alex Aja, Gabriel Del Toro, Quentin, Robert Rodriguez, we would all have the exact same upbringing. I, I just love the idea of crafting things that thrill people, that scare people. How do you come up with new zombie kills? Because that, I mean, for me, it's like, if I'm coming up with a slasher, you can go to Home Depot and come up with different tools. There are a lot of ways it's easier. But if a zombie, it's got to kill basically the same way every time. How do you guys keep Well, how do you guys, you know, you guys have the same situations in your movies. You have to come up with ways that, that number one, haven't been done before, right. that are thrilling for the audience to see, and unexpected. And you know, listen, I guess also it goes back it to the characters, though. If we're caring about the human characters, yeah. then I guess it doesn't have to always be yeah. different. It's yeah. who it's happening to that's different, so that's what And who's who's executing it, who's you know, doing who's it. Who's in danger know. now, I suppose. Right. <clears throat> have you ever wanted to do a zombie movie, a zombie story? 
I, I never was pushed in that direction for some reason. Maybe just because it was always pushing him in that direction. So, right so on the nose. So, <laughs> so something I should be doing. I don't know why. I remember you describing like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the thing about truck stops, that like the dirtiness and danger of the weirdness of like. I've always been drawn stop. to like yeah back road. Like back road strange people bad. And I remember that as a kid in the seventies. Yeah. That kind of thing where if you pulled over at the wrong place in the wrong car with the wrong people, it was you felt like you were going to fall in the hands of the Manson family. So your films always thought... I, I think I picked that up from aesthetic. touring in the early days. You're in a van and you're like, we're lost and there's... Who do we ask? Start. Really scary guy who... <laughs> I just remember times driving lost up these roads like, what? Where are we? Like, someone could kill us and no one would ever know. But you, it was always like that, but constantly yeah. for yeah. years. And you, and you, and genuinely, years. you genuinely fear for that. I mean, I remember shooting a movie and some guy's like, hey, let's go to this bar. It was before we shot, it was before Dust Till Dawn. It was before, it was a long time ago. And we drove for like an hour into the woods and I'm sitting in the backseat yeah. with my friend. I'm like, we're dead. They're going to take us in the woods, and they're just going to kill us. And and you know what? I'm going to be cold and covered in worms and dead, and no one's ever going to find us. Yeah, because I remembered, not to get out but like playing a show, you just showed up, and there's not a club. There's not a sound system. These kids are like, oh, we always do it in the drainage ditch. I'm like, how do you get power? We have a generator. So it's basically a gasoline generator, powering equipment, and a whole bunch of drunk guys who are like shooting off guns while you're playing, and there's no lights, so they lit fires. That's oh, perfect. Wow. Like, it's tonight's show. Yeah. Do you think that the <clears throat> success of Walking Dead comes from the way television's changed? Because everything used to take place in one episode. Yeah. It seemed like the network's like, well, we don't want anyone to be confused. So nothing was ever connected. And then everything became like, so you could binge watch one to the next to the next to the next. And it seems like that's why I'm just the general you make a 13 hour obsessed. movie. Yeah, like, well. I, I think absolutely the the idea of having a serialized show. I mean, look, we we, we loved the first on, ones to really get serialized in terms of in terms of a zombie show. Absolutely, and even in terms of some pretty great horror storytelling. Uh, absolutely. But we, we talk about Dawn of the Dead and the fact that yeah. that movie was two and a half hours. If The Walking Dead had to be told in a two and a half hour time slot, you'd never be able to do it. Yeah. You wouldn't care about the characters. You wouldn't really know who Daryl is, who, yeah. who, who Rick is. The fact that we were able to tell these stories that that were great survival stories set in this backdrop. Now the way people watch TV is they don't watch it live anymore. Yeah, yeah. They wait until the entire season's done and then they watch and them they all watch one them all. night because they love the experience of watching these shows together. I mean, it one of the amazing things. Thing. I remember one of the amazing things about Walking Dead was the yeah. was the first. It's the a second communal experience. That people Netflix want to watch it together. Yeah. It's like and we did like a thirteen-hour movie, and people wanted to get through it to be the first one to declare if it was you know if it sucked or if it yeah. was the greatest yeah. thing. And they're like, you know, now with social media, your text, your tweet, you're like connecting you with everyone yeah. else watching it at the same time as you. Yeah, yeah, but the problem is if you don't see it that night. Then you can't look on any social media anything. or anything on yeah, the internet yeah. because it's all spoiled, which is yeah. which is a giant bummer. But one of the things that I love about The Walking Dead is because it has become a communal experience, families, like grandmothers and mothers Everybody and daughters, that. and I, I've never heard of that ever, that material that is regarded as, as genre material appeals to so many multiple age yeah. groups. Let's talk about like one of the first 
huge monster movies that to this day still influences us. I just saw it on your sweatshirt earlier, Frankenstein. I think that was probably one of the first, I mean that Frankenstein, Dracula and the Wolfman. Yeah. I mean, you think about when that came out kind of after World War I, kind of going into the depression, but really those are the movies that saved Universal Studios. I mean, Universal Studios was gonna go bankrupt and all of a sudden they start making these monster movies and it literally saves, the, it's, like, it's almost like it saves the industry. But that image of Frankenstein and the little girl with the flowers and the little girl getting thrown into the water, what is it about Frankenstein that you think it's, it's such a cultural icon? I think it's the same thing we say about everything. It's the movie. It was the director and the right actor at the right time. Because it, you know, it could have been awful. Mm -hmm. but, and I think probably because it wasn't a monster movie. It was, but that sort of didn't exist yet. So Karloff gave a real performance. I mean, he's phenomenal. He's above everybody. I mean, you know what? You know an actor just stands out. Like he's yeah. doing it the whole, like he's De Niro. He's on another mm -hmm. level what's happening in that movie. And that's why if he was just some big lumbering guy, be like, eh, it's cool. But, and I also think James Whale's just, he had just another sensibility. Because as soon as he was gone, it wasn't cool anymore. I mean, it's, we still like Son of Frankenstein stuff, but it was a whole other game. The but he's probably, I mean, could you say, I mean, people might say that Jesus is the original zombie. Um, do you think that there's a connection between zombies and the Bible and that people believing in Christ rising from the dead and the dead rising? I do, absolutely. And I think even what's great about Frankenstein is that whole idea that he, by having the, the key to life, he actually is messing up with God's plan. And no matter how technically adapted he is at putting this body back together, and the brain and everything, it's never going to work because he's screwing with the divine plan that God has set out. It's a creature without a soul. And it's funny because most people... But he's the only one but he does have a soul. Yes. Colin he does. Clive seems like the creature without a yes, soul. Yes, it's true. Which people forget, of course, that, with, oh, Frankenstein, it's like, it's not lost on people that... Dr. Frankenstein and the monster is named after him, but which one really is the monster? This guy who's defying... The one well, that's, uh, by the way, that is a question. Exactly. Is the monster named Frankenstein or is his name Frankenstein's monster? Because you'll hear horrors fighting about it's this all yeah, the time because there's Frankenstein. It's Frankenstein's it's monster. Right. It's Frankenstein's yeah. monster. He's not like, I'm Dr. Frankenstein, I'm naming but my monster Frankenstein. In the, films the villagers have took to calling the monster Frankenstein. You know, they, they oh, say, so it. They they say it. By the okay. way, the way you right. delivered it was perfect. I think I'd definitely... Right of Frankenstein. Yeah. But they if say something like that in one of the films. But what about Abbott and Costello meeting Frankenstein? That's no. awesome. Remember that launch? Yeah. Like, you can, I love that movie, That was amazing, Abbott. Remember the Abbott and Costello monster movies? That was like another amazing hybrid as a kid oh, yeah. when you're like Abbott and Costello wow what are they gonna do with Frankenstein but, but for me Glenn Strange was almost more the iconic Frankenstein because he was on everything you know what Cereal it's boxes absolutely things, you know? because I mean, when, when they obviously the genius but I mean that was the more that's the, one you the image that we associate right. yeah, yeah, it was yeah, because yeah. it was on the famous monsters covers mm -hmm. in the 50s when Screen Gems did the shock theater package that they released for syndication and the posters and the sugar and smacks yes that great yep. yeah that yeah James Obama, yeah, yeah. Let's, I mean, being a makeup, the makeup expert that you are, do you want to talk about groundbreaking makeup by Lon Chaney, Bud Westmore? I mean, what was that like? They were creating that stuff for that movie. I mean, Dracula, he could suck his hair back and well, how does the Wolfman. Jack, Jack Pierce. Jack Pierce. Jack Pierce is literally the guy who invented everything that we strive for. 
you know, if you look at... And where at does Jack Pierce his, So the movies are starting. They want to create these monsters. He was the head of makeup at Universal. And he would sit there and use mortician's wax and clay. And they would have to use whatever they had in this very limited makeup kit and build things up on, on their head. They'd build it up with clay and they'd shape it with sculpting tools and they'd carve things in and then they'd lay hair over it. And then the next day they'd have to do it all over again. So it was really, you know, the idea the thing you hear about like how much Karloff's boots weighed mm-hmm. and the things that Lon Chaney stuck in his eyes and his nose to distort his face for Phantom of the Opera or the hump in Hunchback of Notre yeah, Dame. Jekyll like these guys suffered for their art. They were like, listen, I, I'm creating a character and if I'm going to take this piece of wire and I'm going to shove it in my eye and I'm going to bend it uh, or I'm going to put a 100 pound hump on my back to distort my body. They did it out of a love and a passion for creating these characters. And that's not lost on every generation of makeup artists that has come since then because they sweat for their craft and they love it. And every time you watch the Wolfman transformation and you realize that, oh, they made a pillow out of plaster and he sat his head in the pillow and he had to sit there for six or eight hours while they would run in and glue a little hair on him and run out and shoot a little more footage and run in and glue a little more hair on it and couldn't move his head. They had to, everything had to be locked in. You think about the fact that the invention of the movies and and talkies and when after World War I in the Depression, the only avenue of escape was movies. That was it. And to go to a movie to take you away from whatever was going on in your life, the more fantastic, the more horrific, the more outrageous... It made you feel better about everything else that was going on in the real world. It was pure yeah. escapism. And that's why the monsters became so successful and so popular was because it was the one thing that was thrilling, that was scary, that was horrific, but you could still experience it. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. felt connected to it. And friend, monsters were our friends when we were kids. We were like, Wolfman would never kill anybody. Yeah. He's great. Look I at him. Because how we got to experience them, they were already sort of nice because yeah. there had been toys and models, but I've always think back to like when Frankenstein first hit theaters, like no one's prepared. <clears throat> Do you ever have that moment where you watch a movie that you've seen a million times and you have the, a weird moment of clarity, like, wow, I'm seeing this like I've never seen it before. Mm-hmm. Sure. Frankenstein's like that, like you'll watch and you'll hear like, you know, Dwight Fry screaming, like, wow, this must have seemed really intense. People, people lost who didn't have their anything minds. to compare it to, because I'm sure everybody hadn't seen Nosferatu or whatever. They're probably just like, oh, a movie. And then it plays so real and it's so relentless. And there's not, they're not let, like, putting in comedy to ruin it. I just wonder if audiences would just be shocked. And also the way and the villagers treat him. I mean, the was, way- was Frankenstein rated X? I don't even just, think there was, I mean, was there rating. even ratings. There, was, there, was, there wasn't even ratings. I, I remember it just being one of those things that they talked about that it was shocking and that yeah. that that it was so traumatizing to people that certain aspects of it I felt. Uh, if I recall, like when he picks up the little girl and throws the little girl yeah. into the lake, that was so taboo that a little girl was killed in a movie. Yeah. little girl. That I think there were no boundaries with those movies, and they were really doing it to, to push the system, and that's where we end up with guys like Toby Hooper and George yeah, yeah. Romero and John Carpenter, people that push Well, what's funny now is, like, you think of Freddy Krueger and how Freddy Krueger had his own, like, Saturday television show called Freddy's <laughs> New... Freddy was a child molester. 
Like you think about Freddy in the Me like Too era, like Halloween like costumes. The kids are like dressed like <laughs> Freddy Krueger. Like if you look yeah. at his origin story, they burned him because he was a child molester. Right. Like and he wouldn't get away with that. And either. now he makes just today. I don't think that would uh, that would. No. You, know, you think but of, but it's true. You think of Frankenstein as your friend, and the villagers burning him. It's the same empathy you feel at the end of King Kong. You're so sad for the monster because you feel like it's really not the monster's fault. And they're burning him, but. But his creator, he drags his creator yeah. with him. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I always, I always love going through and thinking about all the classic movies, Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein, and thinking about the body count. Like the number of people that die at the hands of these, yeah. of these monsters. And the one thing, just to hit sort of a funny weird note, the Invisible Man, worst of all. He's literally, <laughs> he derails a train. <laughs> and like the yeah. entire train goes off a cliff, kills like 200 people. Nobody goes, man, the Invisible Man, that guy's bad. There's like Frankenstein, he's the worst monster yeah, ever. He true. kills like two people in that's the movie. So but, but the body also count. That, yeah. that messing with science. That is the first part of the man messing with science, which then in the 50s turns to atomic radiation. Well, same with Invisible Man. Yeah. You know, the, the, well, there was that famous line that they was cut out until whenever they restored it, you know, now I know what it's like to feel like God or wife. But then it's interesting in all the sort of retellings that they've tried to do, whether it was Andy Warhol, whether it was the Robert De Niro Frankenstein <laughs> we've all conveniently forgot about. What about it, the Hammer movies? The, well, the Hammer movie. The Hammer movie works. The Hammer movie works. The, well, the, the, the first one. Also, my, my first recollection of all these movies was, because of how old I was, was Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula because they yes. were in color. Yeah, they I know. They were a little the sexier. The girls were color. really cute. And there was the, the blood was great red paint. Beautiful red paint blood. So when, I, so when I grew up, those were the first movies that I saw. Yeah, they were on I experienced the original Universal Monster movies on Chiller Theater. And every July, they would have Classic Horror Month. Mm -hmm. And every Saturday night, they would do a double feature of Wolfman and Frankenstein. Then they would do Dracula. And I was reintroduced to the original Universal Monster movies after I had seen Weird. Christopher Lee. I thought Christopher Lee was Dracula. Yeah, like yeah, when yeah. you were talking about Glenn Strange. Right. I thought Christopher Lee was Dracula. So when I first saw Bela Lugosi, I'm like, hmm. Who's this dapper? He doesn't have bloody <laughs> blood red eyes and he doesn't have fangs and he doesn't, yeah, yeah. that that image of Christopher Lee and House yeah. of Dracula, or Horror of Dracula. When yeah, the, yeah. The so for me, when you watch the original movies, you realize there's so much more mood about them. And the mood of Frankenstein and the mood of Dracula in those movies where the camera well, they work, had, everything they had takes to do a long everything. time. I mean, yeah. they the had to do works. everything. The silence works to, to unsettle you. I mean, you're coming out of, they've probably been sound movies for three or four years at that point, and up until then, the art form is completely visual. So if you think about the, well, you know, what the German expressionist horror films yeah, did, or what Benjamin Christensen did with Haxon, and witchcraft through the ages, that which is incredible, which unbelievable the imagery in that movie, or Carl Dreyer's Vampire, mm -hmm. which is just mood and shadow, and half the time you can't really tell what's going on. The cabinet yeah. of Dr. Caligari with those fantastic sets. I mean, they weren't. It wasn't about the dialogue. It was just mood and shadow and light and what Nosferatu. I mean, it's funny because I first saw. Dracula with Bela Lugosi, so I thought it's like, I want to suck your blood. That was like, <laughs> you know, the, the kind of the Hungarian accent yeah. or the Romanian accent. But then when I went and I watched Max Schreck and you watch the original Nosferatu, yeah. it was terrifying. And I thought it was so cool that Toby Hooper went to that kind of vampire in Salem's Lot and Klaus Kinski yeah. when he did his, like the bald vampire 
with the teeth like that always yeah. freaked me out. I don't know if you guys remember those, like, first thing Nosferatu. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Lot, I mean, he, it was, well, Salem's Lot, to me, was groundbreaking at the time because it was a, you know, it was a miniseries. And, and it was that, so weird, it was on so, TV. And it was creepy. And that, that, the that greatest, experience yeah. of horror on TV is Salem's yeah. Lot. The yeah, scariest and the greatest, the, the great scene when the brother comes back yep. and he's clawing yeah, on the, the window. Windows, and if, you, if you watch that scene, it's so weird because it's all shot in reverse. The, really? If you, if you go back and watch it, the, the way the smoke is filtering around him mm. and he comes out of the smoke, it was all shot in reverse. He's clawing on the window and then he goes back and then they blow the smoke in. And it's just like there's something weird about it and that, that trick photography. But Salem's Lot, I always thought, was just absolutely terrifying and riveting. The idea, which I always love, and I always feel like the idea of this small town being poisoned by this evil that spreads out from the yeah. middle of the town and just takes everybody over. You're developing a project very much like that, as a matter <laughs> of fact. But what's, what's fascinating about all those movies, I love the original. Dracula because the castle set is so beautiful. The first 20 minutes are insane. And there's no, you know, like the, the camera move up to the, the coffin and just the hand starting to come out and then you cut to the brides. It's, oh, it's I mean, I think it, it's gotten kind of fashionable to bash it. You know, Todd Browning, oh, the Spanish one's better and it's so stagey. And, mm-hmm. But it's, it is, but it's phenomenal. I mean, I love how quiet it is. I love it's the aesthetic of it. The creaking of it. And I, again, I think Lugosi's on a whole other level. Like everybody yeah. else is kind of acting like they could have been in Showboat or whatever. It didn't, like, you know, they're doing like regular Lugosi Hollywood felt acting, like they found a real vampire. But he's on a whole other trip, you can tell. I mean, he's just so in it. I mean, same with White Zombie. Mm-hmm. Some yeah. of the other acting is a typical 30s acting, and he's. You know, he's, on a, he's whole, in a different he's movie. He's like Brando in Apocalypse Now. No, he is. <laughs> a whole other world, yeah. you know? And that's why, I mean, again, that's the only reason we're talking about these movies. No, well, it's true. We're talking about David Manners. <laughs> and one of the coolest things about Frankenstein is that it was created by a woman. Mary Shelley created that. Yeah. And people forget that. Well, they I thought think it was kind of cool that they started Bride of Frankenstein with that. With her. Remember. Yeah. People, you know, can remember that. And yeah. people don't remember that, and they don't realize that Elton Lanchester plays Mary Shelley, and then she plays the bride, yeah, yeah. which is which is great. So another completely iconic thing. Yeah, the hair of Elsa Lancaster. Yeah, I mean, just everything is like it's almost like you know you have Frankenstein, Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, Elvis. Like these things become so iconic. You they, take for granted. Yeah, that, that someone, someone had came a, up at with it. At some point, someone had to create this, and the fact that they go, let's give him a flat head and bolts, and it isn't stupid. It's incredible. It's brilliant. Those, those are the meetings. Now. Listen, that's the meeting that, you know, we, we always joke around. It's like, if you can go back in time and work on any movie or just stand on the set in the corner, what movie would it be? And a lot of the makeup effects says, oh, a creature from the Black Lagoon, because yeah. it was a cool first creature suit, and you can see the zippers and all this stuff. Yeah. But imagine being, uh, you know, standing in the makeup room on Frankenstein and hearing them talk about, like, oh, he's got a scar here, and there's the bolts, because he's got to clearly conduct the yeah, electricity yeah, yeah. somehow. I mean, those are the conversations incredible. that I, I, you can imagine. You wish there was one person that you can just, you know, back to the future, like, oh, yeah, let's yeah. go to <laughs> Mac Marty. I'm like, I'm well, going imagine, to well, this universe. Is a- Interesting, because in the 20s, you start with Nosferatu, with Max Schreck as this hideous-looking vampire, which is kind of, if you read Bram Stoker's Dracula, you would imagine that kind of creature on the boat, you know, killing everyone. And then you have Bela Lugosi, 
the charming, suave, like seductive vampire, which to this day has kind of continued. You know, in Salem's Lot, there's a scary scene where you know you look down and you see the brother when he opens the grave and the eyes yeah. are open, and you see what that that vampire, the main Marlo. vampire yeah. at the end, looks like, and it's very similar to Max Schreck. But then we have it's extended all the way to the Twilight, the sparkling Rob Pattinson, you know, vampire with me. I've never heard of it. But I do think Lugosi, though. Sometimes I feel like he is more animalistic than you think because it's been his accent and his every line is like a cliche now. Mm -hmm. But when you really, if you can watch it in that moment where you haven't, you know, every line's not like been imitated by everybody, he does seem really raw. Yeah. Compared to everyone else in the movie, because everyone else in the movie seems like you know real puffy, and he's like, he looks like he's there's like, an in- fuck everything. There's an intense. Yeah. There's an well, intense. That, there's that great scene in Ed Wood when they talk about you know when he's shooting heroin with yeah. Johnny Depp and Martin Landau as Lugosi is talking about how women are drawn yeah. to vampires because of the menstrual cycle and how the the vampires crave the blood and they aren't repulsed by it, and that on the subconscious level, the women would love, you know, fantasize about a vampire mm. that they could play. It's just yeah. such, yeah. and I'll never forgot that scene. Yeah, because he is intense when he's going down the street and yeah. the girls selling the flowers, like, and I mean, it, it, it's, and it's, now it and it's scary. So I mean, but he seems super intense. Well, well let me ask you this, though, because I can't recall off the top of my head, but there was a, Lugosi played Dracula on stage yeah. yes. before they made the movie. Exactly. He was in the play. So that transition in terms of Dracula as the gentleman was, I think, propagated by the fact that people recognized him as Dracula because he had played Dracula on stage. And that's one of the reasons why I always feel that Dracula is really successful visually because it's an adaptation of a play. The camera sits there, the sets, the way the blocking is, everything feels like a play. It feels staged, but in that day and age when people had been accustomed to going to the theater to see it, then it's like, oh, wait, I get to see a movie of the play. Of the stage play. Of the stage play of Dracula with the same guy. Which is something that we would do now. We'd be like, oh, wait, they're doing a stage version of that? Oh, I'd see that because it's based on that. Again, like... It's interesting how Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster, has stayed the same, whereas zombies has evolved by leaps and bounds with the rules of that creation. I think vampires followed a similar track to zombies in that there would be a movie like the Hammer movies of the 60s that came along, and then they would do the John Badham, Frank Langella, Dracula. That was always like the first sexy vampire. The sexy, yes. I was so bummed. But they were good. But then you had two movies... Before that, I was going to say Fright Night and The Lost Boys. And Fright Night was like someone who was aware of a creature feature show. So it was people that knew about horror movies and you had to go to the horrors. Roddy McDowell, he's like, I'm just a horror host. I don't know how to kill a vampire. It's like, but you do know how to kill a vampire. He's like, it's all make-believe. It's like, it's not make-believe. And that having to sort of use the rules by watching other movies to kill that. And Chris Sarandon, and he's like, mom, you didn't invite him in the house. Yeah, of course I asked him (laughs) in. Like, no, mom. But The Lost Boys was the first time when you saw that movie of this is how me and my friends would deal with vampires in this town. And again, they had Kiefer Sutherland as the cool, that was the mix where they had like the cool, sexy vampire. But when you really see what they're like, they turn like evil and ugly at the end. I mean, that movie, that felt yeah. like a punk rock, you know. It was, it was, it was an 80s, amazing. An 80s punk rock alternative movie. Uh, I love Lost Boys. <laughs> but the Frog Brothers, again, you have like the, 
Corey Feldman yeah. and his friend, and they know because they know the comics, so suddenly they're super valuable in the vampire killing. And I mean, but that was what was great so, about it. Was the we had, we identified with it because the two kids you know, hung out at a comic book shop, and they knew every rule about how to kill monsters. So that's what we were all about. We were like, man, I'm, I, I'm that kid because I know everything yeah, about monsters. But, but oh. then, yeah, the monsters. <laughs> but also the next one, I mean, you had Coppola's Dracula, but also The Hunger. Remember that Tony Scott, like yeah, the David Bowie and Susan, like, and the way that that was shot, and them hanging out in nightclubs, like no one had thought well, that to whole opening with Bauhaus and yeah. tying it all together. That well, that was and wasn't it the song? Made. It was Bella Goes He's yeah, Dead, Bella right? Goes, yeah. Dead. yeah, there you go. Yeah, I love Let the Right One In. The sweetest. Oh, one. I haven't seen it in a while, but I, remember. Oh, I haven't great. seen it in a while. I mean, little girl. I mean, I love the opening where there's the old man and the little girl, and you know that they've had a love story, and that she's got to find someone new, and they become friends, and she's traveling in the box. I mean, the scene in the swimming pool where That's she saves the them in the swimming blood. pool. The swimming pool so scene beautiful. is always the the one that that you remember. I mean, again, what's what's great about all these movies that we're talking about is any good movie will put you in the position of either what would I do if I was in that situation or if I was in the room watching this go down, what would I do? And the thing about so many of these movies is it's like, oh, well, if I was there, what would I have done differently? And, you know, let the right one in and then the American remake, you really feel the connection between those characters and your humanity is sort of trumping the idea that you're helping some of these inhuman. Setting you know? it in Sweden, I thought was really cool. You know, yeah. the Swedish, like that kind of cold, it gave it this this Nordic look, yeah. this kind so of quiet bleak. feel. It was bleak yeah. and dark and beautiful. I mean, there was also... The 30 lead. Days a Night was, yeah, you 30 know, days a night, another, another interesting... Well, are interesting because if you're going to go, oh, if we're going to make another Frankenstein movie, it's always like, well, what does the monster look like? The whole movie lives or right. dies by the monster. Whereas, like, vampires, it could be a little kid. It could be Klaus Kinski. It doesn't matter almost. When, when these movies came out in the theater, what was great about uh, Dawn of the Dead, Evil Dead, was they got a second life on the midnight run, yeah, yeah, yeah. on the midnight Always. theater circuit. I remember seeing Dawn of the Dead, and by the time it had made it around, the print was so bad because people were cutting out the gore, yeah. cutting out the exploding head. So you'd see a print of the movie, and all of a sudden, pieces were gone. And when I saw Evil Dead... I had seen it at the same theater that I had seen Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and I remember seeing the poster, and the poster had a quote from Stephen, Stephen King. King. That's yeah. why I said, saw it. said, the yeah. most ferociously original horror movie ever made. Horror film yeah, it was ever made. the most terrifying film I've ever seen. Something like that. I thought it was ferociously original. But either way, I was like, oh, my God. And the poster art was the girl with the cross yeah, and, with and the, the hand, hand pulling her down. It was the most, it's the most evocative. It was the, one of the greatest pieces of advertising. So... I was like, oh, I'm in, man. And the premise was so simple. You know, a bunch of people in a cabin, they find a book, they read from it, they resurrect these demons, possession, and that's it. I mean, it's, it seems like the simplest setup, but man, oh man, it was relentless. relentless. So many of the things we've said every time. There was nobody recognizable in the movie. I don't think so. No, no. And I had the same experience. I walked in, I didn't really know what it was. I saw the poster, just as you described it, and you're just like, blown away. Yeah. Like it totally changed, like you'd never experienced that again. 
like you know, like are these real actors? What's happening? It seems so raw and so primitive and so demented, like it would never end. There was there was, it was also just so different. Yeah, I had that experience fantastic. where I we read the quote, we got it at the video store. My friend and I we watched it. And we couldn't get through. We had to watch it in like five or ten minutes chunks because it was so terrifying. I couldn't take that kind of intensity. There had never been. It was like having an adrenaline needle stabbed into your heart over and over and over. <laughs> From the opening shot when it went through the woods of oh, yeah. join us. I was so terrified. I couldn't take my. I said, "Oh no, this isn't." Because the, even The Exorcist, which at that point. Nothing had traumatized me quite like The Exorcist. There's, a, there's some weird stuff in Iraq. There's like things that like, it, there's build up. It takes a while and so like, yeah. there's moments where she's possessed, then they go and the, yeah. you know, they're talking, they go to the hospital. There's a lot before you're at that final showdown between Max von Sydow, you know, and Linda Blair. Yeah. This thing right from the first frame, it's, un- <laughs> it's so terrifying. And it was like The Exorcist on steroids. Yeah. I mean, there was everyone was getting possessed, and it could happen to you. I mean, that was by far yeah. my biggest symptom. You're so in your mind fever. trapped in that cabin, like yeah. you were trapped in the farmhouse and Night of Living Dead. It gets so claustrophobic. That's what always messes with me. When you, it's just that one location. Well, yeah, well, it was cabin well, fever. Well, it's great I made, because I, exactly I picked right. the cabin and cabin fever to yeah. look like Evil yeah. Dead. Yeah, yeah. Works. you know, and and the swing when it's boom, there's some, boom, and then it and stops. Then it just stops. Like, oh, <laughs> but there's a there's a there's a youth, so scary. There's a youthful excitement about that movie. Exuberance. Ex- it, you can yeah, tell yeah, that yeah. Sam is so excited to make that movie because he just wants to scare you. They made it for no money. They ran around in the woods with. You know, Super 8, they literally shot it on Super 8. Ran around and just anything that they could do, you know. The, what was it, in the woods was shot on Super 8 to raise the money for it. I and thought that they shot, they shot it no, was, shot, oh, shot you know what, it was within the woods. Within right, the woods, right. with Scott Spiegel. With Scotty Spiegel, who Scott one of the Spiegel, characters is they, named well, Scott after Spiegel Scotty. Scott Spiegel was going to act in it, but then he had to work at the grocery store in Michigan for the summer. <laughs> so he couldn't make the movie, because they named the character <laughs> Scotty after him. So they named the character after him. But, you know, I, I remember even, again, you know, you're, you're talking about filmmakers who use whatever, whatever means they have. You know, when uh, the first girl that gets stabbed in the ankle with the pencil. the pencil. And they did that great shot where they just, the camera held on it and they drew the spider web veins and animated yeah. them. So it went, yeah. and the veins just spread out from her leg. And then she popped up and was wearing those. First time you'd really, aside from maybe the Sentinel, you had ever seen those completely milky eyes yeah. for uh, an extended period of time. I mean, they did it in Gates of Hell. Yeah, uh, or the Beyond. The Beyond. At the, um, the last they shot. did it. The last shot on the Beyond, but this was like entire sequences. And the with thing that was her, the chained in the basement, and the, and like the face coming up, and the hand, and the, I mean, there was so much blood and viscera and gore. It was awful. That was that whole thing of there's your friend. You have to you know kill them by total dismemberment. Yeah. yeah. And it's still not enough. And then the the tree rape. In that movie, it was oh. like, oh, now we have to worry about this? <laughs> and now the plants. And <laughs> I just, yeah, I mean, there's something about it, too, that I think it's really changed the way I see things. It's because they're so, it's so primitive looking. Yeah. Like, whenever I see a horror movie that's really slick, I go, well, it can't be scary. Because everything like, would be at Evil Dead or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Night of Living Dead. They were always so primitive looking. I didn't consciously think that when I was watching it, but when you go back and go, it seems There's something like it you was notice about it. Yeah. Made, yeah. It, well, this Devil's Rejects, you really got that on shooting it on Super 16. Yeah, I, I mean, had I that feeling when I watched Devil's Rejects. Degenerate everything because it, I'm always like, it looks too good, it looks too good. We have to ruin it more. There's something about it, I just 
I, no, I love like, that like aesthetic. When you see security footage, I mean, maybe that's why, like, you know, found footage movies took off because it felt it real. It felt real. The movies got so slick yeah. that they, you know, and then that got boring again. But I think it's just something about it. But Evil Dead felt deranged. That movie was such a phenomenon that in England, Sam Raimi was brought up on obscenity charges and like had to go to trial over it. It was so, what? Video Nasties, right? Was, was that the list That was of, the one that the started the, the, the Video Nasties. Yeah, yeah. You know, the government crazy. stepped in, and because of that, he decided to make Evil Dead 2 comedic, which is interesting because the other movie that did that was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the first one is terrifying and the second one is comedic. You met Yeah, but, about you know, that. listen, I, when, I remember working on Evil Dead 2 and was reading... Was that the formation of K&B or was it Intruder? Intruder was the first K&B job, but on Evil Dead 2 was when Howard and Bob and I kind of went, hey, you know, each of us contribute something different to this How scenario. did you get on that movie? We got hired. We were working for another effects company in town. I remember loving how horrific the original Evil Dead was. And I'll be honest, I think for, as an effects guy, one of the things that bugged me a little bit about the original movie was... The effects were, you know, they didn't have any money to do the effects. Yeah, so yeah. you can see, like, the tubes in the cheek and spraying blood. And I always remember thinking, man, if you had Dick Smith doing the makeup yeah. on Evil Dead, the mankind would end right there. It yeah. would be the exorcist times a thousand. Yeah. But one of the interesting things that I discovered about Sam Raimi when working with him is he has a great sense of humor. Like, all, all of these directors that he's we... He's more we, influenced by the Three Stooges. He's more influenced by the Three Stooges. And we're shooting in Glorious Bastards, and Quentin wanted to know a Three Stooges quote, and I called Sam, and I'm like, listen, we're in Berlin, and it's three in the morning here, but we need to know the answer to this Three Stooges question, because he was so heavily influenced by them that I think the intent always was to inject much more of his personality into Evil Dead 2. I had never heard that there was a conscious decision to make Evil Dead 2 slightly more committed. Because I'll tell you, in the original script, when he's out in the woodshed and he's got Linda's head in the vice and she's vomiting on him, and then the door flies open and the head, Linda's headless corpse comes in with the chainsaw. The chainsaw. I remember reading that and like, this is a, mo a headless body <laughs> comes in with a chainsaw. I was like, this is the most horrific thing I've ever seen. And then, of course, when we shoot it and we're shooting it and he's adding these outrageous gags, you know, the, the pee we had, the, 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 which was my hand, by the way, the pee we had <laughs> jumps on uh, the pee we heads in the trap door, they jump on it and the eyeball shoots out, Yes, and the eyeball the flies through the room, and he literally says, okay, that was a, there was a gag in the Three Stooges where this pie fight and the yeah. thing flies through the air, so he was doing what, very different than what we do, and we take the monsters that we love, and we're like, we're gonna, I, I wanna do this, I wanna incorporate yeah, yeah. monsters in my stage show, or Monsters in my in my movies. He's like, I'm gonna take the Three Stooges and, and I'm gonna interject it. them into That's this funny. horror movie that Brilliant. I'm making. I always related to like the, a Roadrunner cartoon. Yeah, absolutely. I never thought Three Stooges. Oh, Scotty Spiegel, who co-wrote it, is a stooge obsessed. Yeah. He knows everything about the Three yeah. Stooges. And it's right. like he's... I mean, it was very Joe Dante. I mean, if you yeah. really think of Sam, you, you think about Joe Dante, who also has that sort of love for like... Yep. That kind Looney of stuff. Tunes. And that's what that that sort of takes those movies to a different level because much like American Werewolf in London and John Landis, where you're sort of treading that line where the audience is like, they're laughing and then they're not sure if the next moment they're going to laugh or they're going to scream. They don't know. So they're tense and they're anxious and they go, ha, 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 and they laugh. And then all of a sudden, boom, the blood hits the lens. Uh, but there was well, kind of a shift, don't you think? Like Evil Dead 
It just not just for sure. Dead, for sure, it, movies in general was like they became like with Freddy. Every, everything became a little more like audience pleasing. The well, original seemed like let's assault the audience till yes. they can't take it anymore. Then it's like they're in it with us. They dig this stuff. I think what happened kind of make them happy. I think what happened is it with them. I think about that all the time, and I think what happened was sort of the backlash to what everyone was calling Rambo violence at the time. The cure was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And when Schwarzenegger came in, he started making jokes. It's like, where's yeah. Sully? I let him go. And so you, saw, you were going to see the movie to see what joke Arnold would make after he killed right. someone. And then Freddy Krueger was the first monster that could talk. Jason didn't talk. Michael Myers didn't talk. The world, the, Frank, they didn't talk. Freddy talked. So suddenly it's like, have a knife day or yeah, whatever yeah, the yeah. joke was. <laughs> Don't lose your head. And the idea, the very concept that the murderer was self-aware enough to make a joke, the audience went nuts yeah, for it. And yeah. these movies, before Friday the 13th, part three, they had never really gone beyond two. Like, when they start getting into part four, it was no longer about what's scary, it's how can we kill the kids. And people are going there for the monsters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For the kills, so, yeah. But when Freddy Krueger started making jokes in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Elm Street 3, you went there, you didn't care about the kids. You And, and Elm Street 3 is a brilliant film. I mean, that screenplay by Darabont and Chuck Russell is like, mm. it's no accident, that movie. And that brought back New Line Cinema and the franchise. But I agree with you that, that it no longer was about how is this idea terrifying? It was how can we kill the kids and what joke can the yeah. killer make? Yeah. Because what, what year did the first issue of Fangoria come out? Uh, it came out the year Dawn of the Dead came out. So I want to say 1979. 79. Yeah. 79. Fangoria number End one. End of 78, 79. So it sort of started a whole new way of consuming it. Yeah, like because there were toys and the thing. It just became different. Nobody thought, oh, I need a but, Leatherface doll in 1974. Right. <laughs> you know I mean? But now, yes. Yeah, a whole the, other way. Of the whole the collectible, yeah. yeah. I remember knowing about Psycho and the shower scene and like being aware of the director Hitchcock because I, I saw Psycho in reverse. I, Psycho wasn't the first movie I saw. I had already seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Dawn of the Dead, and I knew that Psycho was one that I had to watch. Jaws, I was aware of the music, but Psycho was the first time I was aware of the editing and how your mind gets tricked and what you see off camera. One of the big things that I think to this day was still shocking about Psycho was you kill the protagonist 40 yeah. minutes into the movie, yeah. which yeah. is what I wound up doing in Hostel. And Quentin was the one who said, he's like, you gotta do the Psycho switch. No, one, no one's done it since Psycho. Like, <laughs> killing your main character 40 minutes into the movie yeah. was shocking. Even knowing that the shower scene was coming, I was like, wait, this, she can't be the one who gets killed. There's so much movie left. It was I, incredible. I, 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 when I was young, I was a big fan of Hitchcock, and I had seen The Birds, and I had seen, I think I, I saw Psycho after I had seen some of his other movies. Yeah. To me, I was very aware of the way he told his story and just the way that he set up the paranoia and when she steals the money and she's at the car lot across from you know Universal Studios and you know she falls asleep in the in the, the everything about it and then you get to that point where she shows up at the hotel and she you're lulled into this false sense of security and she's like okay well she's escaped and she's at this place where no one's going to find her and then it all just starts going wrong but for me, I always thought that was the most fascinating thing about it was you're really convinced. She goes into the bathroom and she adds up the money and she writes a little IOU of the money yeah. she spent on the car. And I'm just going to take a shower and go to bed and I'm going to put my life back in order. It's, tr it's horrifically tragic that 
it was a person who did the wrong thing, and this was always the way Hitchcock movies work. Yeah. It's a person that does the wrong thing, and they're just about to steer back into trying to do the right thing, and he... He can't stomach it. He can't stomach the idea that somebody would get back on the right path. He's got he's to get rid of it. Dispatching him. Yeah. Also thinking about the cross-dressing killer, that was a shock as a kid. That was probably the, the first I think that trend. was one of the first big... I mean, you think about like, other movies that, like, you know. that, that did that, whether, I mean... I don't even... I mean, for me, it's a kind of weird, the like you said, history, because I'd seen so many other films first. Yeah. And then I remember going to Universal Studios as a little kid. There was a psycho host, but I hadn't seen the movie, but you're kind of aware, oh, it's Norman Bates. Like, mm-hmm. you, you know so much about a movie that you've never seen. I, appre- I definitely appreciate it more now yeah, I mean, than I, I did the then. Yeah, I because I saw it thinking, how can this be good? It's old and black and white. I don't know. <gasps> how could you? you know, I like <laughs> but so it's much, true. I, I know. I'm I know. still obsessed with Frankenstein. So being like, but I think being actual scary. Yeah. And I saw it in the perfect circumstances. My parents were ripping apart our house, so all the walls were bare wood. They left a chair so I could watch TV. Was there a light bulb? It was, I swear to God, the house was destroyed, that one room. And I watched it by myself in that destroyed room. And it was like, again, you know when you get that moment like you're in the movie? And I was like, this is like the greatest thing I've ever seen. It was kind of like, you know. And then Hitchcock, they don't want to release it. He puts it in two theaters with posters, like daring people, yeah. you know, to Love see that it. Poster. And it becomes yeah. a phenomenon. And then he does The Birds. But also what Psycho does, I mean, that is the original slasher film. But there's, there's a really interesting period kind of between Psycho and between Halloween where violence really takes off in movies. In the American 70s, and Vietnam happens, and wild you start bunch, getting movies like Wild Bunch, and Taxi Driver, and Rolling Bonnie Thunder, and mm-hmm. started that off Bonnie and Clyde, and like The Godfather, and there's, it's like the first time you're seeing like, I mean, the Italian started it, Bruno Corbucci starts on-screen violence. It was like, you could never show a bullet hit before, but then the Americans take that, and we start doing on-screen violence. Well, in Italy, they start taking these crime novels that are called Jallos because of the yellow paper mm-hmm. cover. And in 1970, Dario Argento does Bird with a Crystal Plumage, and it starts a whole, this whole spate of these incredible violent slasher films, often a black gloved killer mm-hmm. penetrating a woman with a knife. And they have crazy titles like yeah. Black Belly of a Tar- the Tarantula, films like Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling. But all of these Jallo films really become the predecessor for the first American slasher. I mean, Mario Bava's Bay of Blood gets pillaged by so many different movies. But in 1974, Bob Clark comes in with Black Christmas. Right. Black Christmas. And that is the first American POV of slasher, the girls in the sorority house, over the holiday, calling, you know, stalking. That, that becomes, and it's a Canadian film, yeah. but that becomes sort of the, the precursor to John Carpenter who comes in with Was Halloween. Was at the time, Black Christmas? I don't remember. I, I, I saw it. I remember seeing it, uh, it was, on, on it home wasn't video a phenomenon. when it came out. It, was, it came out, it did well, but it wasn't like a big... I mean, the idea was he was going to do Black Halloween. He was going to change. He was going to go through all of the holidays. Yeah. Black Easter. It was just, you were going to take every holiday, put the word black before it, 
and then make a slasher film about it. But clearly it didn't do well enough for him to warrant. And then the guy, Bob Clark, such an underappreciated genius, creates the slash, the modern slasher film. Then he creates the sex comedy with Porky's. Porky's. And then he the makes the most, movie ever. the greatest Christmas movie ever, <laughs> A Christmas Story. I mean, this guy creates three yeah. huge subgenres. Never gets credit for it. But then in 1978, everything changes when John Carpenter, for $300,000, mm-hmm. shooting in Pasadena, makes Halloween. Talk about your, your personal connection to that I movie. remember the first time I saw Halloween. It, I, I mostly saw, and whenever I talk about seeing something, it was always at the drive-in most of the mm. time. I remember my mom took us to the drive-in to see Halloween. It just blows your mind. The way he tilts his I head, yeah, everything, staring at everything about that movie. Thing, I mean, you, know, you can't I mean, wrap it, sum it up in a conversation. No, you can't, yeah. because and it changed everything, the way it just felt, even though it was shot here, it felt like the East Coast, it felt, I mean, everything, and you can't even think about that holiday without that movie, it just changed the way, the perception of Halloween, I mean, Halloween seemed like trick-or-treating and fun, and it's just like, completely is a different thing. When, when I was going to do the remake, when I, when I first got offered it, I said no because I thought, that's crazy, you can't remake that. And then I thought about it more and more, and I thought, well, maybe if I make it completely different, you know, you can kind of do it. Because there was so many things in the movie, I went back and really watched it. Even though I'd seen it a million times, I never watched it with the idea of making it in mind. So I would watch it go, well, there's not that much on Young Michael, there's not that much at Smith Grove. A lot of it's talked about, but they never show it. Right. So I thought, well, what if I show it all? But still, with all that, I was like, eh, I gotta call John. You know, and I called him up, and I, if he said don't do it, I wasn't going to do it. I was mm-hmm. just going to cancel it the next day. But he was super supportive, so I was like, okay, now I don't feel so weird about it. No, it was awesome. But that was, was really the, gonna, fun, like, the, the like, first murder. Him, like, oh, boy, it's going to be really weird <clears throat> calling the Weinsteins tomorrow and telling them I'm not doing this movie because John Carpenter said don't do it. But he was and people cool. came out in droves. I mean, that was like a $30 million opening, but pe- people just, they loved it. Yeah, I mean, it was... And then Halloween 2, I thought it was a beautiful yeah, it looking well. film. It was Your funny because I, I remember too. they had, I think it was the Friday the 13th remake and the Nightmare on Elm Street remake were both taken off the books. They weren't going to do them. Yeah. And then after Halloween, I remember reading an article in Entertainment Weekly that they were both greenlit. They're doing everything. Because, I don't know, everybody thought that stuff was dead again. And, Never did, obviously. It's a but, crazy uh, you, cycle. It's a crazy one, cycle one, that we live. One thing we should talk about. Oh, horror's dead. Just give it a few years and everybody right. forgets and yeah. it's new again. But one thing we should talk about, if you think about the, the landmarks, Psycho and Halloween, clearly the bridge between the two is Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. I mean, it, it is the same Ed Gaines story, and it is also a but slasher every movie film. that we've talked about, that's the one that defined me, I think. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody has a movie you watch and go, that's me. Mm-hmm. And Chainsaw was like, that just... I was like, that's me. Like, that's everything I wanted in a movie and everything I ever wanted to do in movies. It was just disgusting and nasty and that redneck thing that also, there I were, can't get enough of. And know. there were sounds that you couldn't identify. Yeah. I mean, that music and the way those credits are and those solar flares. Just and the, the sound, sound, just the sound, the sound of that camera. You, and, you, you, that, that, should be, that should be my ringtone because everything that... that the sound yeah. design in More that movie. More than any other movie, uh, that's one when you watch go like, are these actors, did they yeah. just show up and who, whatever? No, Edwin Neal. I agree, I agree 100%. Jim it, it, really feels, it really feels like you were dropped into uh, watching something happen for real. And that movie, for me, I would agree that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the first one where I thought they were real people. Yeah. I never looked at them as actors. I ne- It wasn't that it needed to be polished, but similar to Halloween, you don't see any on-screen violence. It's all implied. When he when he Puts picks her up the meat hook. and he's holding her over the hook, 
and the hook's in the foreground, and he's bringing just, her towards yeah, it. After he does it, and he just goes around, like, kind of pondering and oh. sitting to himself, and then, like, his tongue is licking those teeth and the skin on the face. It was and, the and most the horrific. Reaction, her reaction. Of yeah. everything. Her, yeah, and that she doesn't die like right away. Weight, and you came out of that movie certain that you remembered. Oh yeah, remember you see the hook go through her. Yeah. But your mind just put it all together. There was that and movie. The same was, with the wheelchair was, chainsaw attack. Yeah. That movie just changed the way I thought about movies. Yeah. Instantly. Yeah. Like, well, it was a movie with no rules. When she goes into the house and she falls down and it just starts looking at the shots of the heads in the cage and the chickens and the furniture yeah. made out of bones. And just the way he shot it, like almost like the acid trip from Easy Rider. Yeah. It just felt like it would you were really there and someone just happened to catch this and the sound and the noise. Yeah. The, the metal awesome. Daniel Pearl. Yeah, it's it was right. brilliant. And they talk right. about how uh, you know, Toby Hooper Daniel Pearl tells a story about how he's like, I have an idea. I think we can lay 60 feet of dolly track and put me flat on the ground. When she gets up off the swing, off we, can the follow swing. Up. <laughs> we can follow up to the house. The and the, uh, the AD was like, no, we got to move on. We got to move on. And Toby said, we're doing the shot. And if the financiers don't like it, they can fire me. Like yeah. he, he literally thought he was going to get fired over that. Toby Hooper told me that when they were shooting that scene, when they were shooting the dinner scene, they had so many dead animals in the field nearby, in this house that they were shooting, it was like really near a slaughterhouse, that they decided the only way they could get rid of the smell and the flies was to burn them. And they lit them on fire and this giant burning marshmallow of dead animal started wafting smoke into the house. And they had put trash bags and tenting all around because they were shooting it for yeah. nights. So it was 120 degrees and the smell of the, and they were just throwing up and shoot, and you feel it. Yeah. You watch the that scene. Of yeah. making the misery of making that and the frame. danger. Frame, when they yeah. put a little, and they really run the saw and it hits Gunnar Hansen in the leg. Yeah. And it really, I mean, they were really running. He, it, Toby called that movie a $60,000 flare he shot up yeah. from Austin. And I mean, it's in the Museum of Modern Art now. It's, it's a classic, but it's unmatched after that. I mean, it, that ratchets a horror to a whole other level. Yeah. And, and then Carpenter goes to shooting 235 with this, and Halloween, he tests the movie. No one finds it scary. So that, he goes- He tested without the music? He, it, he, or he tested with different, and then he went back and rescored yeah, it, yeah. the whole thing. And it was terrifying, the same it's movie. It's weird, because each of these things have something like, Halloween is phenomenal, but the score is like one of the greatest scores ever. Yeah. Like that's so much, you know, you can go like, okay, there was like whatever, Psycho, and then Halloween, I mean, but it's the score. The score, Jaws. You can play people, I mean, it's very Iconic. few films where you can play people, just the average person, the score, and they'll go, oh, Halloween, you know? Yeah. They may not have even seen the movie, but they'll know the score. I mean, it, I mean, even when I was making it, I remember having the argument with the composer, I go, we're not going to write a better score. We have to use it. Yeah. I wow. know we would like to, it but It wouldn't be Halloween with it. It's like <laughs> Star Wars yeah. and Jaws. It wouldn't yeah. be. I may, have been kind of, I may have purposely held it out for a really long time before I used it. Yeah. Knew you had it to use it. can't get around. It was just, it's too phenomenal. But it, it's interesting because we're talking about all these slasher films where the killer is unstoppable and at the end survives. You know, Leatherface yeah. doesn't die. Michael Myers. It they, was all for nothing. They disappear. <laughs> Everything that these people went through. And I remember that's what I loved about movies in the 70s. And you're talking about Black Christmas and the fact that the killer, the most haunting thing about it, and you did it perfectly at, at the end of Green Inferno, was you leave it open that, oh, my God, you leave the, la you leave the character with the idea of, like, everything that we've yeah. gone through, all these people that have died, all the trauma, all the terror, 
and you turn and you look and that's right it's off they're gone yeah. yeah they're gone and i think that was to well, me those, let's talk about the, the idea that you craze. can't that you can't kill them and they can they can continually come back they're unstoppable isn't that something? shot in leatherface yeah. where she's on the porch and she's running out and he, and he grabs, grabs her, her and body drags her back in and slams that door I totally to the kitchen stole that oh. shot in halloween too oh yeah Not halloween too but halloween also when you know uh, daniel harris runs out oh, daniel harris yeah. is yeah. death that slow motion you know, wow like, you know i was like that's the leatherface slamming the door in the audience's face shot Ugh. that slow motion shot as she turns was really Really love and it's just, uh, There's something uh, so great about leaving the audience on a real bummer. So this this June, uh, they're doing a 40th anniversary of Dawn of the Dead at that mall, and they're gonna have a convention, and they're gonna hire Goblin to play oh, the soundtrack. Okay. I'm gonna go. keep I'm gonna keep you in, wow. in the I'm loop. I'm gonna go. I gotta go. Because wow. I, I I'm gonna fly up from Georgia to go just because. Right. All right. Keep in the loop. I, I definitely will. will. All right. Make that. All right. We're rolling, guys. <laughs> Sorry, we're geeking out for a minute. <laughs> Sorry. Um, slashers. So Halloween costs three hundred thousand dollars, makes forty million at the box office, which is a massive amount of money at the time. It costs three hundred thousand. It makes forty million. Every studio wants to make these cheap mm -hmm. slasher movies. So some of them are terrible, but you get classics now. All of a sudden, Friday the Thirteenth, Jason mm -hmm. Voorhees, Mother's Day. They're shot at the same time on the same lake, the same summer. Oh, I didn't. Even oh yeah, Mother's that, Day right? and Friday the Thirteenth shot literally across the lake from each other the same summer. They had their rap parties together, and they came out different. But other uh, other holidays start getting co-opted. Black Christmas, April My Fool's Day, Valentine. My Bloody Valentine. You suddenly happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me <laughs> with a shish kebab through the mouth. Prom night, a holiday. Prom <laughs> night. Basically anything that's a special occasion. That's why I wanted special to do special occasion. That's why I wanted to do Thanksgiving. Um, you know, even Mad Magazine had Arbor Day as the parody. <laughs> Um, I remember but that. those movies, it was like, I mean, April Fool's Day, Sleepaway Camp is a fantastic slasher film. The Prowler, and mm -hmm. this is where Tom Savini really becomes yeah. man. The Burning, like, yeah. you go to see these movies, I was like, I want to see the pitchfork scene in The Prowler. And the shotgun blast, Maniac, Bill Lustig's classic with Savini, oh, yeah, with the Maniac. scalping. I mean, Maniac, there's this fantastic kind of Times Square sleaze trilogy oh. of Maniac. New York Ripper and Nightmares in a Damaged Brain. Like the Italians come over, like Lucio Fulci, Romano Scavolini, they start making slasher films too. But it's this incredible you, explosion. Those movies in the 80s in Times Square was like the greatest experience yeah. ever. I'm so I think jealous. I saw the to do that. And the people in the theaters, which were just like junkies and prostitutes, were scarier than the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Pieces. Peace is one of my favorite Texas Chainsaw Massacre ripoffs. You don't have to go to Texas to, for a Chainsaw Massacre where he's building a human jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. That was a classic. That's what they call them the grindhouse theaters, these dirty, disgusting oh, yeah. theaters. They were. What was that? What did you see? Do you remember any? The scenes? first thing I remember seeing. Well, that was the great thing. It's like you just. Uh, Cannibal Holocaust. God, you was, saw that in the theater. In the theater. I remember just. I was a bike messenger and I'd be driving around and suddenly one, there'd be a wall plastered with Cannibal Holocaust. I didn't even know what it was. But the poster. Looked like someone had cut it together and just duct taped it, and they scribbled out the nudity with a sharpie or something on the posters, like wow. one at a time. And I was like, "This looks like the greatest movie ever made." <laughs> I, I go, "It can't be," because I didn't know anything about it. I go, "How could this exist?" And then I went to see it, and I was like, "How can this exist?" And I didn't Who know made until this? tonight. I became so obsessed with Cannibal Holocaust, I had to become friends with the director, put him as a cannibal. 
in Hostel 2 and then go and make my own cannibal movie called The Green Inferno, exactly. which is the name of the film within the film in Cannibal Holocaust. So amazing. But I had to talk to him about, he got put on trial because the makeup effects was the girl with the impaled. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like he actually, I mean, this guy, Ruggiero Diodato, makes Cannibal Holocaust and gets people to disappear for a year after making it. The actors actually agreed to disappear for a year, so people really believed they were dead. It was the first kind of found footage movie which then of course got used again in yeah. Blair Witch Project. But the slasher films, I think they sort of culminate with Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street is the next quantum leap forward, I think, in horror. I mean, this, this killer yeah, that definitely. can kill you in your dreams. Yeah. So suddenly you have a slasher. It crosses into the supernatural. It whose arms, the supernatural. It, it yeah. is the blend of supernatural <clears throat> and yeah. slashers. And I always think of, when you say slasher movies, that that's when the killer became the star. And the kills like, became the star. Yeah, 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 the kills. The other actors who yeah. gave a crap. No, you just didn't. It was all about... Johnny Depp. Who cares about yeah. that? Yeah. Well, they watch it. Yeah. yeah. But you know what I mean? It was like, whatever was on the cover of <laughs> Fangoria, whatever, whatever, that's what it was. That's yeah. what that genre meant to me anyway at that time. No, yeah. it, it absolutely, and and I think it it became really all about with the success of Friday the Thirteenth and the success of Halloween. Producers were ravenous to find material, and knowing that oh, well, this is the formula. I mean, every one of those movies followed the formula. The real trick was what's our little twist at the end yeah. going to be? You know, how are we going to? Twisted a little bit, but all those formulas were exactly the same. Yeah, and then and it got a little, it got a little tired. Yeah, so then got, you get to the point where it's like, okay, well now let's let's transcend this one genre by creating. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street came out in 1984. I remember because we were filming Day of the Dead when Nightmare on Elm Street came out, and I, I remember the picture in Fangoria of Heather Langenkamp with the telephone, with the mm -hmm. mouth, the tongue, yeah. the with tongue. the mouth and the tongue. The marshmallow and I, stairs, I, yeah. imagery was amazing. And I remember seeing that movie and I was so, I was so excited about the fact that, oh, there's a new twist to this subgenre mm -hmm. that now the rules of any sort of world don't apply. Right. And I think that's what made Freddy Krueger such a unique character was because the rules didn't apply to him in any capacity. It just took us to a different place. And then Elm Street 2 <clears throat> didn't work, but then Elm Street 3, they, they really reinvented it and brought it back. But it, it does feel like Elm Street, and for me, sort of the, the final kind of punctuation mark in the golden era of violence and gore and slasher was Reanimator. And yeah. that was like a, a great mad scientist movie. It was H.P. Lovecraft. But those effects in Reanimator mm -hmm. were insane. And when you have a dis... When you have a decapitated <laughs> head, the body takes it and goes down on the girl. Yeah. I was just like, this is the most amazing movie. I remember I went to a, like a, a bunch of kids were hanging out at a house, like having a party, and they watched Breakfast Club. And I was never, I'd never been so bored in a movie. I was just like waiting for something to happen. People something just keep talking. Something. And I was like, I have a much better movie. And I put on Reanimator, <laughs> and the whole party cleared out. Dude, I, I saw that movie. I had just moved to LA. So I moved to LA September of 1985. It was because a lot of the guys worked for Charlie Band. Right. And John Beekler. John Beekler was one of the effects guys on that movie. So when Reanimator came out, we all went to see it. And I think there were three instances in my life when I was almost sick in a movie. And we've talked about all of them. Reanimator, Maniac, and Mother's Day. 
Mother's Day was so brutal uh, th- I love th- that, I, that I, I had a hard time. I wanted to walk out because I was so disturbed by it. I was, yeah, I showed it at my bar mitzvah party. because <laughs> I, was, I wasn't friends with enough girls to have a dance. So we, we literally watched, watched Mother's Day. And I had like cousins from Scarsdale who were traumatized the, by the like Drano, the, the, oh, the Drano down the mouth. But then I, I now have a 35 print. I've had screen, I had friends with Charles Kaufman. I yeah. got to interview him about it. But, but let's look, just getting back to slashers, slashers kind of go for, away for a while. Like once it gets into, you know, what we're sort of out of weapons, I think the public starts to get bored of it. They well, want, so, and there were so, so many sequels. It there just was, became, it yeah. just and became... They were always diminishing and, returns. Exactly, yeah. and they yeah. were never about being scary. And then suddenly, once again, Wes Craven, he does it with first Last House on the Left, 1972, yeah, which we talk about as one, of, one yeah. of those yeah. precursor slasher movies. That movie... That is a movie that you're watching and you feel like these are real, we're watching serial killers. These are not actors in this movie. Yeah, that movie for me is always like, if you could take the cops out of it and the comedy, the rest of it is just so amazing. Yeah. Like it always goes to that one part. I don't know, they guess they needed a comedy break, but it, the rest of it's like right with like yeah, with Sensei. Chainsaw, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's on that level. But so he does this with Last House on the Left, 1972, creates this landmark horror film, does it again in 1984, and then Scream comes along. And it takes all the rules of the slasher movie, and it's the first movie that's aware that not only the characters know, the audience knows, and they use cell phones. It wasn't when a stranger calls, we gotta trace the call, I'm watching you. <laughs> the idea of a killer using a cell phone, moving around a house was ingenious. And I remember I actually got that script. I had just written yeah, Cabin Fever. Movie. It was called yeah. Scary Movie, and I was like, oh, this is like a professional script. This is the scariest. It was unbelievable. And that movie, made $100 million. That brought it all back. But they had a little trouble getting that movie made. I remember that script was around for, I I believe the script was around for a little while. No, it's... Um, it's, Because I, I I, I don't know, I could be wrong, but I, because we did the effects for, for those movies, and, I remember it being that that script for Scary Movie seemed to, maybe in my recollection, kind of hanging around because, again, the, the slasher genre, people were looking at it as a slasher movie at yeah. that time. But, but Wes really brought, uh, I think Wes, his sense of humor very much like Sam Raimi, I think Wes's sense of humor really elevated well, I think, uh, a lot of that too. If you think back, a lot of it's the marketing and that ushered in the beautiful victims marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, and they did it with Halloween H2O, it was just like nice. The faces. Yeah, all the faces, faces stacked on the, the poster. Killers, they just Floating heads. shoved in the background. And it, it did, to me, it did, did usher in the sort of, like you said, the Dawson's Creek Horror. Yeah. Well, before that, we had Silence of the Lambs. But if you remember, Silence of the Lambs, if that had been released 10 years earlier, would have been a horror film. It was they a called horror. it a thriller. Psychological thriller. Psychological thriller. Psychological That's thriller. such bullshit. And then The Sixth Sense bullshit. comes out, and it's a you know psychological ghost movie. What I mean, that's seven? like... did Seven come out? Because that was another Seven episode. was a, you know, a psychological... It's, it's unbelievable. These are all movie. films that under any in the 70s or 80s would have been horror movies. Somehow, if you called it a thriller, because it was, it was classy, lowbrow. It was lowbrow. But a thriller, Silence of the Lambs, yeah. won Academy Awards. Yeah. So, supernatural thriller. That was what they called The Sixth Sense. And there were orders not to call it a horror film. One of the scariest, most brilliant yeah. films ever made and they said, don't call it a horror movie. It was like horror was a dirty word. It was, it was horror, for a long but time. But then, you know, Rob, myself, James Wan, Alex Aja, we come out with yeah. our movies and we're really wearing horror as a badge of honor. We loved it. We were proud to be guys making horror movies. Yeah, I mean, that's what we wanted to do. It was, yeah, 
funny. But, but there was that leap. Do you think that that was because at that point, listen, I remember watching the Academy Awards and Silence of the Lambs won, and I remember looking to my friends and going, a horror movie just won Best Picture, but nobody wanted to call it a horror movie. I know. Well, they're talking about now with Get Out being the first horror movie nominated for Best Picture. I was like, Sil- and The Exorcist, Silence of the Silence of the Lambs is a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Six well, Sense is a horror movie. I, re- I remember when I was um, trying to get a rating on Devil's Rejects, I could tell, and I would and eventually, after like going through it five times, I got on the phone with the NPA because they're like, they will not speak to you. And eventually, they did. I got on the phone, and it really, I could tell it was like, if my movie starred someone famous, would you care? And I could tell it's because it didn't. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah. oh, you have Anthony Hopkins, so it's like it's classy. You know, You can go back from the first footage of a train pulling into a station of people screaming. What is it that people love about going to see horror movies? What we love about it, what the average person loves about it, I think is different. Like, uh-huh. like you said, like we'd see a, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre dawn of the dead, I go, I want to live there. We want to <laughs> live in that house. I want to recreate this in my house. And essentially, we did do that. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. But for, I think for the average person, it's like you can safely experience something demented. You know, like. They would say, oh, you slow down at a car crash, but you know, it's basically you're slowing down at a fake car crash. But, and I think that's why there's, there's a thrill in bad stuff. There is, and also as a kid, I just wanted to hear ghost stories. And Grimm's fairy tales are kids being the, eaten and baked in thrill. ovens. Yeah. I mean, like there's, there's stuff that's so strange and unknown about life and death in the world and violence that it just gives you a safe way to let it out and be scared without feeling like a coward. Well, and I think it's also it's also coming to grips with our own mortality. Yeah. You know, that it's that's one of the great that's the one great question that no one can ever answer. Mm-hmm. What happens after? What is it going to feel like when you die? How are you going to die? So when people watch these movies and they experience that horrific moment in Psycho when the shower curtain comes across and she gets stabbed and she's laying there and you start on that great close-up of her eye and you pull back. Mm-hmm. It's like maybe there's some weird catharsis of like, okay, well, thank God my death could never nearly be as yeah. bad as what I just saw. Yeah. So maybe it's not so bad. Maybe I'm just going to fall asleep. I think uh, it's, I think it's all you know. dealing with the fear of death and we yeah. need something to... And also, there are very few places. I think that rock concerts and horror movies, I mean, I'm sure you've, you've been on stage in a director, so yeah. you've experienced the crowd going crazy and releasing that energy in a cathartic way. I mean, it's totally linked, obviously. And, I, and, I, and the best way, I mean, we're lucky. We get to do what we love. Like, when we were little kids, like, I want to do that, now we do it. But I, I think back to, like, before that, and was like, that was your moment. Here was my boring life, and that two-hour concert was my whole year was built around being there. Or, like, you know, standing there staring at the giant billboard for Day of the Dead, like, planning yeah. months yep. in advance. Knowing when it's coming out. The yeah. first yeah. screening for the first day. Like, I don't know. It's, that just, kind it's, of... such a, it's such a break from just regular stuff. I remember I was showing my dad. We, he watched that movie about Schmidt. Yep. And he was just like... I don't want to watch this. This is my life as it is now. I don't care about this. I feel like I'm watching myself. And I think that's what it is. You're like just something that is so not your life. Also, I think that movies are the closest representation to the feeling of what it's like to dream. It's like conscious dreaming. And horror movies are the closest things to our dreams. Like narrative movies don't feel like dreams. But in horror right. movies, you can break logic, you can break imagery, you, you can break, break rules. The rules. Yeah. Yeah. It really is this conscious feeling. 
And also it's like, we, we're not allowed to be scared anywhere in life. You can't be scared at work. You can't be scared at one, but everyone has that, oh, what's that spot on my hand? And am I, you know, I'm scared. Everyone yeah. has fears and the way to let it out, you can be, you know, it's like a safe way for, I hear from soldiers on military bases that we're watching hostile and watching my films and screaming. And like they're dealing with death, but they're not allowed to be afraid. But for 90 minutes, you can be afraid and not be a coward. You said it best, it's a magic trick. And every horror movie is like, I wonder what it would be like if some guy's head get crushed. I wonder what it would be like if, and that's, well, we'll show you what it's like. It's like yeah, this. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're the guys who do the magic tricks. They're just super gross all the time. Yeah, and they should be. <laughs> When I when I grew up in Pittsburgh, right at the bottom of my hill, Showcase Cinema opened, and it was oh my god, Showcase. Cinema. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, I remember there were there were I think there were ten theaters, uh, ten theaters in this one complex, and I would pride myself on driving by and looking at the billboard and going saw it, saw it, saw it, saw it, saw it. <laughs> we had those those that that summer like between like eighty one and, and eighty two. Those two summers when every movie that was out was a genre movie. Mm -hmm. It was either Poltergeist, mm -hmm. E.T., The Thing, Creepshow, Road Warrior, Blade Runner, Star Trek II, Escape from New York. All these movies came out and they were so, every weekend we had something new to see. I remember going to see Poltergeist and the thing that just appealed to me so much about that movie was playing on those primal fears. I think Poltergeist mm -hmm. was one of those movies, and ghost stories really do that well. They find that thing that you're most afraid of, yeah. and ghost stories are able to and turn I, it around. I think the ghosts, vampires, werewolves, zombies, people don't really believe that stuff is real, but yeah. ghosts, you ask 99% of the people, they're like 100% certain that they, yeah. they have seen a ghost, that there are ghosts, that they it's experience ghosts, there. there are ghosts in the house. I mean. The ghost subgenre. I mean, I think that's why it just—it literally never dies. It's it just, really does. So, no. Whether it's the innocence or whether it's, you know, the person in the white sheet, what, whatever it's evolved to. I mean, I remember a ghost story, but Poltergeist was the movie that it's like you took the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Salem's Lot, and you took Steven Spielberg, the director of Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was the biggest horror event of my yeah. childhood, that movie. Yeah. And the fact that it was PG and that terrifying meant I that everybody what, could see it. it was incredible. And what makes it work so good is the Spielberg family unit. Yeah. Such yeah. him, because you could, like, yes. the, little, the kid with the tree, scary tree outside, and running to his bed, and the... Well, I think... It wasn't I, so big. It was small enough that you could... It was relatable. It was a ghost and, and it was that you know, on the ancient Indian burial ground. Still the, the grave. Still the greatest. Up, the maggots, the meat. You moved the headstones, but you didn't move the graves. That's great. That, is that's Poltergeist time. is a ghost movie, and the scariest thing in that movie is that clown. That goddamn clown yeah. sitting there and looking and then wrapping around the neck. It is so freaky. I think that's where the marketing for it began. I think that people were traumatized by clowns from Poltergeist. And years later, it is the same scary fear of clowns. But look at Poltergeist and look at Paranormal Activity. That movie was so terrifying. simple. Terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. It just solved that. Like I was saying before, like Poltergeist is phenomenal, but then its audiences always seem to get overly sophisticated. So then it's slick. So you go, okay, they're actors. He's the guy on coach. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we change that? Yeah. Oh, we'll just use no Blair Witch. And we'll make it look really primitive again. And, and it tricks everybody. Again. Blair Witch. Blair Witch. Or Blair Witch. What is it? Yeah. What is the end of Blair Witch? Right. With Mike walking in that wall. It's yeah. just stone. It's literally sticks and stones. 
and it's terrifying. And leaving it with a question just freaks everybody out. Because yeah, everybody grudge. wants it to be wrapped up. Yeah. It drives <clears throat> audiences crazy when you don't wrap it up. Yeah, but you know, it's, uh, it, it's... The haunting. I mean, think about the, the Dude, when you mentioned Dude, when you mentioned the, the innocence, to me, that's one of the most terrifying films. And what it's, what's great about it is it, it follows that line of, is she seeing it? Or is she not? Is she going crazy? But that scene with the with the ghost figure on the on the other side of the lake, and she's standing there screaming at the kids, "Don't you see it?" I mean, I had goosebumps the first time I saw it because it was just the most haunting thing. And they cut to it, and it's there, and she's looking at the kids, and the kids are like, "We don't see anything." Yeah. It was so horrifying. Um, the Shining. That's. I mean, that is the ultimate ghost story. Is The Shining. I think and that, it's a story about this, someone going crazy. Did you feel crazy. that? Listen, The Shining for me. I remember seeing it, and I remember I was a little confused by it because I saw it when it, in the theater when I was really young, and I didn't really understand the whole story when he was going to visit the bartender and you know having the drinks and stuff. I remember being confused by it too because I saw it right when I was young yeah. too, and like at the end when he's in the picture, I'm like, wait, he's always been there? I'm confused. Yeah. yeah. But um, it just that feeling of like. Well, that's a Kubrick thing, but I felt like I was in that hotel mm-hmm. the whole time and couldn't get out. Like, it wasn't a movie anymore. I mean, yeah. To me, that's oh, why absolutely. he's the most brilliant director, because he's the only director who, I feel like, changes your body rhythm. Yeah. Like, we make things and people watch him. He goes, no, I'm going to completely take you, you over. You have to change your pulse and heartbeat. It's in 1776. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Like, he, you know, and I think that's why, you know, and that's what is people it, don't get the movie. And, well, and it was a yeah, much the, more intellectual the, movie yeah. than I think a lot of the other horror movies at that time. The Shining was it more intellectual and really. Totally. By the way, it wasn't it wasn't a splatter. Shining, it wasn't a splatter movie. A splatter six movie. Razzie Awards. Worst yeah. movie, worst actor, worst. I mean, the, the Shining. Are stupid because all the critics did was focus on oh, Jack Nicholson's performance is so, so over the top and the blood in the elevator. It? But you Every think about shots more brilliant than. I mean, it's just it's like, sometimes so, I would sit down, I would literally time the shots, and I go, "Who would let this shot go on for six minutes?" You know, no, and the that, trailer was just go, the blood, right? Like, don't Wasn't go the trailer in room just two, you know, the blood coming out yeah. of the out of the. Don't elevator. ever go in room two three seven when you just hear about room two three seven, which is the room they stay in yeah. in the hostel. Yeah, of course. In room two three seven, it's like. That, by the way, <laughs> but it's like you, you know that you're just waiting for that scene. It's like an imperial activity. The guy goes, "Don't get a Ouija board." You know they're gonna get it. It's just like uh. as soon as the guy goes, "Don't do it," you're like, "Oh no!" But when he goes in and he and Kubrick does this beautiful naked woman in a bathtub, this like 1920s woman, and then the way her skin moves mm-hmm. like cake batter. It's the grossest, most horrific thing. I mean, there's the imagery, that weird thing in the bear suit. Just there's the opening so... shots of just the landscape, yeah. the credits going, yeah. the, even the credits. When you're going like, over the lake. Yeah. yeah, they're moving at weird speed, yeah, like everything so about out of, like the wrong off. way. They're like, ugh. It's kind of like when clockwork starts and it's just that big color thing for way too long. And you're like, yeah. ah, now my body rhythm's already off. <laughs> <zoom. laughs> I'm already the greatest. I, oh, I, Sixth Sense. I mean, Sixth Sense, again, supernatural thriller. That movie, with, I did not see the twist coming in that film. No. I was so and anybody, scared. By the way, anybody that tells you they, they guess it, they're so nobody full of it. So there's nobody guessed there's, it. Did but you that's guess the it? Genius, no, but you know, no, good. I was going to say, but by the way, guess the ending of a murder she wrote. <laughs> Bruce Willis, that was the first time someone had really cast him not as an action hero or as a comedy yeah. guy. I mean, M. Night got this incredible, subdued, subtle performance. Yeah, he's really subtle in that. And Haley Joel Osment is from another planet in that movie. And that scene 
where the girl's being made sick in the videos, and he's looking at her, and she's just, under the t- It's so heart- heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. There's uh, so much loss. Everything about it. The thing that, that is amazing about Sixth Sense is you feel the loss of those people, and you're so drawn to Haley Joe Osment that you can't help but, but sympathize for the people that have died through him. When you realize at the end the that hanging, oof. oh, it was it's it's such an ama- it's such an and amazing that score, movie. The James Newton Howard score in that. Yeah, is. I mean, it's I, I I would say that is is in my opinion a virtually flawless movie. Yeah, there's I agree. so much great about it that when you get to that ending, and and unfortunately, then of course for the rest of his career, he's going to be known for the guy who has to yeah, you know I mean you don't ending. you have to have the twist ending because then people will for some stupid reason oh well he didn't live up to his expectation because he's the twist ending guy it's like no he just and then when great he does story. it and with split another it's just so good <laughs> and unbreakable he, which is a great movie nobody does twists like him you want you hope there's a twist yeah. at the end of yeah. it people always ask me how do you make a horror film scary and I think that the only common thread that I found is when the filmmaker the director is truly terrified by the subject matter you could tell that, that it affects them in some personal way. You can tell when other people are phoning in and trying to imitate a genre, and you can tell when someone loves it. Like when It Follows comes out, and you're like, this, this guy loves this. Yeah. He's obsessed yeah. with this idea of this thing following you and has thought it through to all of its possibilities and done this terrifying, very real grounded version of it. Yeah, listen, that's, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, for me, Finding those moments when the hair stands on the back of your arms—it's—it's it's, yeah. that you can't—you can't express how it feels to be genuinely terrified. And and you know you're in a car, and all of a sudden you're almost in a car accident, and everything triggers in your body at that moment. The adrenaline, the yeah. fear—you're sweating, your eyes are dilated, everything about you is alive. It's—it's it's a moment that comes and goes so quickly. But in horror movies, you're able to sustain that moment. You're able to sustain it for so long that you can't bear to even exist anymore because you're at this heightened sense of every neuron in your body is firing and keeps firing and keeps firing. Yeah, I mean, every time you know, every time you finish a movie, someone goes, "Is it scary?" <laughs> and I, you know, I'm like, I don't know because I, for me, I always think of it differently because because someone will say to me like, "Oh, Devil's Rejects wasn't scary at all." But I couldn't stop thinking about it. I felt disgusting after watching it. I go, that's, for me, that's more what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Mm. I don't know that I can actually make a movie where someone's going to jump in. So, oh, it's just, I, I like that lasting, that resonating sort of dirty scare. effect. Because yeah. I think that's what's stuck with me. It wasn't just chainsaw to taxi drivers. Just they keep playing the scenarios in my mind as opposed to like, oh, I was so scared. Yeah, that's no, that's... I, I, like every, but that's the but it evoked an emotion. It evoked an I emotion. each filmmaker has their own little psycho problem in themselves that they're obsessed with. Every filmmaker and, has their obsession. And if they don't have it, then their films don't have the stuff. Yes. Because every, you know, because it's not about being good sometimes, because I always think like, oh, Edward, worst filmmaker, then why are we still talking about it? There was something special <laughs> that that Something charming No, worst filmmaker is some piece of $200 million crap that I forgot happened yeah. through the movie. I think you're still, you know, because you'll walk out of something like that and you're like, we're not even at the to our car yet, and we're already not discussing the movie. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, we're you can we're still, still talking about these films. Space and go, yes, it's technically terrible, but we're still talking he's such about an it. Obsessed That's maniac, so maniac true. That something so amazing about it. 
I, even the room is the newer version of that. Or Dude, that's so funny because when Seven came out, I told my parents, you got to see this movie. Yeah. And my dad went to see it. I was flying back from location. I was in an airport and he called me and he went, I feel dirty yeah. after yeah. watching that movie. He said it was so depressing. It was raining every scene and it was so <laughs> bleak and, and everything about it. And I said, Dad... That filmmaker made you feel something that you weren't feeling when you walked into that theater. He he elicited an emotion from you. To me, that's what going to the movies and watching horror films is about. It's eliciting those. No, Fincher has that obsession with those. He does with those killers, and and he said, "Thank God for it's because there's perverts. That's why I have a job." I mean, it's like he, you can tell he yeah. has that obsession. I think those obsession. are the movies that last, and that's yeah. like every yeah. movie we've talked about has that feeling. For there sure. were other movies that were bigger hits, and maybe everybody talked about, but they're so forgotten. I know, time it's is the only critic. There's something weird about these, every one of these films had some weird special thing that happened. No, cool. I like what you said about by the time you get to the car, you're like, hey, where should, we, where should we go eat? Yeah. <laughs> then you know that movie sucked, or no matter worse, what. Like you don't even go, maybe the movie most you say is like, what'd you think? Eh. Uh, <laughs> it's the worst. I've talked more about films I didn't even like. Than yeah, than films. Like. Yeah, and that's true. I keep going back true. and rewatching it to try to figure out why I didn't like it. Really? Oh, you're yeah. way, you're way more brave than I am. That means some, there was something Something there. about it that got under your skin. You know, I mean, Hey, can't get enough of the conversation? Eli Roth's History of Horror is now streaming on Shudder, full and commercial-free. At Shudder, we're the best selection in streaming genre. It's handpicked and curated by experts, including me. We cover the amazing spectrum of horror thrillers and suspense, including breakout revenge essentials like Mandy and Revenge, all-time classic The Changeling, horror fantasy hit series A Discovery of Witches, and our new Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Start your free two-week trial with promo code SHUDDERPOD. That's promo code S-H-U-D-D-E-R-P-O-D. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Hosted by Sam Zimmerman, produced by Liam Finn, sound designed by Jeremy Lee, music composed by Michael Tioli. Special thanks to executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sienga, Jonathan Koch, Stephen Michaels, James McNabb, Allison Berkeley, and Joseph Freed, as well as the AMC Networks and AMC Studio Development and Production teams who allowed us at Shudder to make this. For Shudder, Owen Shiflett, Nicholas Lazo, and Robin Jones. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of first publication, United States of America, History of Horror, Uncut.